So this week we're we're going to run a best of this week, and it, there's a reason why. Um, Stan Friedman passed away, as pretty much everybody should know at this point. Uh, or if you don't know, yes, Stan Friedman passed away. He passed away on, I believe it was the 13th in Toronto. I still don't know what the causes were or anything like that. But they said it was heart failure. Yeah, that 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 sounds about right. Um, so pretty much everybody that I know of is we're all rerunning the episodes that we did with Stan. And it's kind of strangely it's it's odd that on the eve of our 300th episode, we're going to rerun our 200th episode, which was when we interviewed Stan Friedman. And in my opinion, I think it's probably one of the best ones that we've ever done. Because um, when me, me and you started the show, he was on the list of people that we wanted to get on here. And we specifically said, we, um, me and you talked about it a lot, that we did not want to, to go into the usual directions that Stan went into when he did interviews. Um, great guy, but he always seemed to have like the cookie cutter, noisy negativist, UFOs, blah, blah, blah. And me and you, we had already heard all these interviews many, many, many times. And we said, well, we want to go to different directions. You wanted to ask him about his nuclear physicist pass and nuclear propulsion and, um, how it all went down is way back in the day when we were, you know, we were talking to Tim Benall and stuff and Tim knew him. So, uh, we would talk to Tim all the time and I called Tim and said, Hey, um, we really want to interview Stan for episode 200. Can you get us an in with the guy? Cause you know him. And Tim was like, well, it's actually real easy to get a hold of him. Here's his personal phone number. And I'm like, okay, is, is he cool with this? He goes, yeah, it's on his website. You go to his website and his home phone number is there. And he goes, I'm warning you when you call him, you're not going to reach a secretary. You're not going to reach a PR person. If Stan's there, Stan will pick up the phone and answer, or you'll get a voice message. But if he picks up the phone, it's him. And I'm like, really? You know, and this is, this was Stan Freeman. We see on the history channel, you see him all over the place, you know? So mm. sure enough, um, I remember telling you, yeah, I've, I've got Stan's phone number and Tim gave it to me and it's on his website. I'm going to call him up and see if I can set him up for an interview for episode 200 thinking full well, we might be shot down because we know nobody knows who we are still. I mean, we got people who know we are, but we're not, we're not big, you know, and we're known mm -hmm. for doing things differently. So, um, I called him up and we talked for about a good, he answered the phone and, uh, I talked to him for about a good 15, 20 minutes. And I said, I'd like to interview you. And this is what we want to talk about. And I told him up front, Hey, you know, we're not going to talk about the normal stuff that we talk, you know, people talk about with you. We want to go into some different directions. Very nice. Very cool guy. Very accommodating. Very, very friendly. Um, right off the bat, I had no problem talking to him and he was just a really nice, genuinely cool guy. He said, yeah, we'll do it on this date. Uh, I hung up the phone, promptly texted you, freaking out, we got Stan, we got Stan, and, and you know, me and you were both ecstatic. Um, mm -hmm. And then we talked about, what are we going to ask him, what are we, because we actually, like, okay, we hope this comes through, we don't want, we don't want to fuck this up, we really hope it comes through. Time comes for the show, we call Stan, um, and I remember he picked up the phone and we're like, yeah, Stan, we're, you know, we want to interview you, we had a schedule, and he was like, huh, I don't remember having an interview schedule tonight, and then he said, well, I'm here. So yeah, let's do this. Let's, uh, <laughs> my heart was in my throat. I know. <laughs> like that's it. It's over. Yeah, pretty much. And, uh, I was like, okay, but he was cool. He rolled with it. And I think it was, I don't remember now. Cause I haven't, uh, was the show an hour? Was it two hours? I know it went a little longer than normal. It was over an hour. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, which I think we say some of this stuff at the beginning of the episode, we're just recording a new intro for it. But, uh, we really did. We, um, 
there were points in the interview where he did try to go into the UFO stuff, you know, and we kind of like me and you were kind of like hockey goalies. We kept knocking the puck back out in the play and we kept taking him into different areas. I personally think he was a little uncomfortable with it, but I've had a lot of people that have listened to the show saying, no, he didn't sound uncomfortable with it at all. You know what? But because it wasn't we, what he normally answered. That's exactly. Why. And I remember like, OK, you're, you're talking about nuclear propulsion and airplanes. This could be bad. And I think he cracked a couple of jokes and he laughed and stuff. But the one thing I genuinely remember more than anything is that he was just a really kind hearted, sweet guy. That was really yep. funny. Like, out of nowhere, we call him because he forgot. And out of nowhere, we call him up like, hey, we're here for our interview. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but let's hey, go with you? it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he just rolled with it. And that was what it was. So I really hoped that we'd had a chance to talk to him again. But a few months because he was supposed to come back on and talk to us about another book and, and stuff, as we often hear from people that say these kind of things. Um, but then he went into retirement. I think. Huh, uh, and they die. Yeah, and they die. <laughs> exactly what happened with the last guy. Um, you're talking about um, our Gary, pa- yeah, our Gary Patterson, oh, exactly. Patterson. Yep. So yeah, these people are like, yeah, we'll come up. Well, Patterson sucked, but that's a different story completely because he was full on like, yeah, you guys are the bomb. I absolutely want to talk to you guys again. And then a couple of weeks later, that was it. And he was supposed to come right back on the you know following, but with with uh, Stan, you know, everybody kind of knew that things were he he said he had retired i think he uh i think he went on tim's show and then i think greg interviewed him as well so um paul kimball um has has said a few things about him because he was related to paul but um you know everybody out there right now is 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 running rerunning their episodes about stan and and he was just such a nice cool guy he really wasn't like anybody else in the field we're going to rerun this episode not because it's you know we're about to have episode 300 but because in honor of stan Uh, That's pretty much it, and we will see everybody next week. And if you haven't heard this yet, enjoy. Rest in peace, Dan. Rest in peace, my friend. Because many people on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, have accepted the notion that most people don't believe in flying saucers. I have no idea why. I've had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures, and two of them were drunk. (laughs) You're going to get that many if you talk about religion, sports, politics. There's no big risk here in sticking your neck out. But people's actions are determined by their perception of what other people are going to say in response to what they say. It's okay. Here's several Gallup polls. They show not only that believers outnumber non-believers, the real over the imaginary, but that the greater the education, the more likely to believe in flying saucers. That comes as a real shocker. Hey there, Rojan. Hey there, Lobo. Congrats on your guys. 200th show, bro. You're my favorite. Two podcasters. Here's to 200 more, you magnificent bastards. Love, Banjo Jones. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 200. Yay! <laughs> now, you, you've never been a person that really celebrates the milestones the way I do. Like when we hit episode 50, I was like, yeah, and we hit episode 100, you were like, yeah. And then we hit episode 150, I was like, I'm not even going to bother celebrating this one. But for yeah, me... But it's, uh, there's a reason for that, though. Well, 
I guess <laughs> it's not it's not that I don't think it's like big stuff and I don't think it's cool or and it's not important. It it's just it's going to sound horrible. Not from you. But, no. <laughs> I know right. Fuck. The asshole's opening his mouth again. Uh it's just after I I guess I'm jaded to a degree. I can understand that. Um you No, know, at one year clean it was yeah, two years was yeah, I got 5. And that's 10. Dear God, when am I going to die? 21. Uh, yeah, but we're like five years now. We've been doing this for five so years. So at year one, we were like, yes. And then well, I remember was like, yeah. I posted earlier five, last like, week uh, our first episode. And it's a train wreck. Well, it's just, we sounded much different. Like oh you God. were you were much stiffer. You weren't as loose as you are now. And the way we, I mean, we obviously were very much mimicking and aping Mysterious Universe because they weren't around anymore. Yeah. And we were trying to learn how to do what we do. And I, I'm kind of curious as to what episode or around what episodes we stopped sounding like Mysterious Universe and just started doing our own thing. Episode 15. Uh, no, it was longer than that. Was it? I don't know. Episode 15. Because after a certain point, I'm like, I don't want to look up all this music anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And plus, Mysterious Universe came back. They came back with Aaron. Yep. Um, because all the shows that we liked were gone. You know, mm-hmm. all the stuff that we were into... Um, Eerie Radio, Mysterious Universe. Uh, I think um, for a little while, I think um, uh, what was Ritzman's old show? Um, oh shoot! Uh, you know the, the the Ritzman and Vaney had their show still Paratopia. going. But the, yeah, Par- yeah, Paratopia was kind of beginning to fade. TJ was fading out for sure because TJ was yeah. like, "I'm not going to be recording much anymore," and that was kind of what got me going. So we were imitating everybody, you know, we yep. were you know, everybody that we were influenced by. We were imitating in some way or another. And that was how we learned to walk. And eventually when we started to run, we said, we don't need that anymore. Because I remember you were you had contacted uh, Ben over at Mysterious Universe. Yep, and but said, he said I sounded like dog shit. Yeah. Because we changed. Uh, well, <laughs> the microphone sucked. I was I was recording with yep. a crappy microphone. You had a headset microphone. Yep. Um, I think the first couple of episodes I was recording into a crappy four track recorder mixing board and then to the audio inputs. Yep. Um, changed a lot. Yeah. Changed it's just, drastically. It's, I'm it's angrier. Time <laughs> much angrier. Much angrier now. Um, uh, you when know, we and, started, I had, I had two children that were still in diapers mm-hmm. when we started this. Yeah. Yeah, and my desk was literally a folding plastic table. That I, I bought from Walmart. <laughs> the computer was upstairs next to the window that is now a fireplace. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was. It's, yep. It was. That was, yeah. Took that window out and put a fireplace in. You know, we. St- I, I still think, like, the original, because like, we were, like, before we even started recording, we were like, what do we want to get for our first guest? Or we were talking about Linda Godfrey. And we said, well, yep. if we were able to land Linda Godfrey... How would we interview her? And that was when we made the decision to start saying, let's not do what everybody else is doing, Mm -hmm. and let's try to give these people a different kind of interview and give people a different kind of experience. And then at the same time, we said, but we can't take ourselves too seriously because we got to act like jackasses every once in a while. Yep. And some people got it, and some people didn't. Some people, you know, and it was... Yeah, I don't know. Plus, our views were much different back then. We weren't as as skeptical, and we weren't as, as you say, jaded. So, you know, we've come a long way. Um, In this episode, um, we got a lot of voicemails. We got a whole lot of voicemails. And I'm not going to lie, I'm going to say right here, a lot of them did choke me up. There's a few of them that choked me up a lot. 
Um, we had cool. Dusty call over from Dusty called in from the UK. Marty called in. Ritzman, Jeff Ritzman called in to wish us a happy 200th episode. Um, yeah. All of those are going to be at the end of the show. This show is long. This show will be a long show, but it's 200 episodes, and we've been doing this for five years. And I've edited probably. 900 hours of audio because <laughs> oh, really it's if you count all the little bonus stuff we've done here and there and all that we're, i'm sure we're over two 200 episodes um well you got to figure we've had a few stasises we had yeah. one spark no you've done two i think was it uh, oh did two i did the white buffalo and you did the yeah we did the legend of the white buffalo and, and the, the wendigo, did the wendigo. and then, then after that you said um i'm gonna do this again and never did it again <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> I still want to do. Eh, I'm, I'm not even gonna say it. Uh huh. Yeah. No, you know what? Yeah. I do. I still want to do the one on uh, Ravens. The Ravens. I still yeah. want to do one on Ravens. The Raven one. And that was another thing we we got into this. Like we started off covering stories kind of like Mysterious Universe did, but we all we weren't afraid to go to the farcical extremes either. We weren't afraid to laugh and have stupid stories on. There's a lot of stuff that is still carried over to what we do now. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, we still like, have the same backbone, yeah. yeah like the, the like the, the This Year in Fecal Matters show, which I oh, said I would geez. never do another one, but so many people have bugged me to do another They're Fecal Matters. They're fun shows, man. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and we're also not afraid to. Somebody out there has got a decent enough story, and they're not a big writer. They're not a big person like that. Um, we're not afraid. Like when we had Calandra on here this last episode, and when we had James on here, and, you know, we've had other, like, Fazeman on here. We've had other people on the outside that aren't big, huge paranormal authors or anything like that, but they have life experiences that are different than the average person has out there. So that's why we've, you know, we're not afraid to have people outside of the, of the core spectrum out there. Because I don't want to be like, at a certain point I just said, I don't want to go chasing everybody down that's on every other show because they're just going to give the same interview on every show. Yeah. So. Well, that's the thing, though. We can have, we've had people on that have been on other shows and they don't share the same stuff on our shows because of the questions that we ask. Well, we also let them know up front as much as possible. Like yep. this guest this week, um, we let them know up front, we're, we're not going to ask you about this stuff. We're not going to talk to you about this stuff because you've talked about it ad nauseum on every other podcast or every other radio show that's out there. You know, so. Yeah, well, I mean, with reason, though. You know, people don't, don't get me wrong. I, I love hearing stories about dogmen and i love hearing stories about bigfoot and i love hearing stories about any number of cryptids mm -hmm. uh black magic any any of any of the magical magical practices i love hearing the stories but at some point i want to know like if if today if we were able to bring alistair crawley back to life and talk to him i don't want to know jack shit about golden dawn i don't want to i want to know the the tomes that he had in his library, the people he hung around with on a regular basis, mm -hmm. the stories no one else hears. That's what I want to hear. Yeah. I don't want to talk about the same stuff over and over again. Well, our guest on this show was Stan Freeman. Yeah. And um, this was a great show. We've been talking forever about getting Stan on here. And there's been many times where I've gone on Facebook and said, I'm thinking of getting Stan on here. What should I ask him about? And then we got the usual barrage of questions about UFOs and all this kind of stuff. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. I, I, I don't. The, the trick was where can we go with Stan that he hasn't really gone before very much because, and Tim even said that we were having a conversation with Tim and Tim brought up, I said, yeah, but Timmy's on your show every year. You know, I mean, what more can we pull out of this guy that he hasn't said 
a hundred thousand times on every other podcast or every other radio show or every other (laughs) thing. And then the more I thought about it and the more we sat down and talked about it, I was like, you know what? This guy's been doing this for a long, long time. There's got to be stuff out there that he hasn't really talked about. Two or 83 at this point. And he won't stop. He just keeps on going. He had a heart attack two years ago and And he's he's still still going. going. Yeah, he's still going. And that was one of the things that Tim said, well, you you need to get him on because who knows how much longer this guy is going to be around. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what? I I do. We need to get him on the show. We need to get Mm -hmm. him on here. Now, this is the thing because we're going to run into the interview here. Uh, again, the interview is about an hour and a half long. Uh, I don't think I have to do very much editing. I'm probably not going to do much at all. There was a weird. Did you have an audio, like a beer thing, a beer advertisement come through on your end of that on the call? No. Uh-uh. Something happened here. I had a web page and open it. And I forgot about it, and all of a sudden it starts playing an ad for Stroh's beer. And I had to quickly shut it off. I don't know where the <laughs> hell it came from either. <laughs> but um, we told Stan ahead of time. I'm like, you know, I talked to him last week, and he was really, really cool. And then I called you and said, we got Stan. We got Stan. You know. And uh, yep. I told him then I'm like lost my shit, and I told yeah. my wife, and she just looked at me like, Who's "Mine that? was the same way." <laughs> my I hung I hung the phone up and I yipped. I was like, "Yeah," you know. And my wife's like, "Oh, did you get somebody important coming on the show?" And I'm like, "Oh, you're being a condescending little bitch right now, but I that's can live awesome. with that." <laughs> Don't patronize me, woman. Yeah, no, I didn't say that to her, but um, that's funny. And when I told Stan, I'm like, "Listen, uh, this is," and I told him, "I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to hear about." The crazy stories, the different stories, the things that that you don't, you know, that you might not normally get to talk about. I want to hear about your history of this crazy stuff you worked on with Jet Propulsion, and I want to hear about strange fans that you've run into. and And he brought up a couple of things that I think he forgot about. And uh, then when I brought him back up again, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, blah blah. And that's where this interview goes. We don't talk about MJ12. Well, maybe a little bit. We do talk yeah. about it slightly. We don't talk a lot about Roswell. It's very quickly passing. What we do talk about is his background in, in, in nuclear engineering, the nuclear propulsion projects he worked on, all of the crazy government projects he worked on, how he got into ufology, how he became a speaker, some of the strange people that he's ran into at different conferences and things like that. Um, just all these unusual little weird stories that, that I've never heard. I haven't heard any of these stories before. And I've listened to a lot of Stan. I've listened to a lot of his interviews on, you know, on the Paracast and Paratopia and blah, blah, blah. And there's a lot of this stuff that I've never heard from. And we kind of try to take them into a, a humorous areas like we do, being jackasses, as much as we possibly can, because I don't think that's a side of Stan that we get to hear very often. Because no, he is fairly. a pretty funny guy. Yeah, yeah, he, <laughs> he has a sense of humor. So that's where we go with this. So for everybody out there who's been wanting us to do this for all these years, and for everybody that saw us on Facebook talking about it and all this, and, you know, just this is for you people. And, um, you know, we're going to roll with the interview. And I guess we'll just do it right now, and we'll see all you guys at the other side. Bye-bye. Okay, here's the thing. This is the funny part. In our rush to try to get the show together and get Stan interviewed, because we were running a little bit behind, I completely forgot that some people don't know who Stan Friedman is, or maybe you live under a rock, or maybe you're just not into the whole UFO thing. That's fine. So I'm going to try to give him a little bit of a bio here, and then we'll jump back into the show. The following information comes directly from Stanton Friedman's website at stantonfriedman.com. We're going to have a link in the show notes, plus Stan later on describes it as well in the show. 
Nuclear physicist lecturer Stanton T. Friedman received his BSc and MSc degrees in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist by such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDowell Douglas working in such highly advanced classified, eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft, fission, and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He became interested in UFOs in 1958, and since 1967 has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in the 50 U.S. states, 10 Canadian provinces, and 18 other countries in addition to various nuclear consulting efforts. He has published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and television programs, including Larry King in 2007 and twice in 2008, and many documentaries. He is the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident and co-author of Crash at Corona, The Definitive Study of Roswell Incident. Top Secret Magic, his controversial book about the Majestic 12 group, established in 1974 to deal with alien technology, was established in 1996 and went through six printings. An expanded new edition was published in 2005. Stan was presented with a Lifetime UFO Achievement Award at Leeds, England in 2002 by UFO Magazine of the UK. He is the co-author with Kathleen Martin, Betty Hill's niece, of a book in 2007, Captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience. The city of Fredericton, New Brunswick declared August 27, 2007, Staten Friedman Day. His book Flying Saucers and the Science and Science was published in June 2008 and is in its third printing. If you have watched any kind of UFO documentary about alien technology, UFOs, alien abduction, or anything on the History Channel, more than likely you have seen Stan Friedman. The guy's been doing this for a long, long time. He's one of the originals. He's got a brain in his head. He's a really intelligent, nice guy. So this is why we wanted to interview him. So let's move on with the show. All right, so tonight, at long, long last, um, listeners will know that we've debated trying to do this for years now. We finally have Stan Friedman on here. We really want to try to give you a different kind of an interview as much as possible as one that you've had a million times. You've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, actually, very. I'm an recently. old man. What do you expect? <laughs> that is a very endearing way of us calling you an old man. You're kind of a natural resource. You know, you're you're something out there that's <laughs> that needs to be tapped and stuff. Recently, uh, Greg Bishop, Tembenal, and Paul Kimball were up at a UFO conference or some kind of paranormal conference up in Nova Scotia, and they did a live episode up there of of uh, Radio Mysterioso, and then they brought up the topic of who was probably the greatest ufologist of all time, and I think they all unanimously voted that it was you oh so, i would have disagreed with them i would have said it was jim mcdonald they they said it was you <laughs> and i think it was pretty much because you were you when you talk about different topics you bring things up in, in a least batshit crazy kind of way <laughs> so um, I, I i won't pass that on as a recommendation <laughs> <laughs> But of anybody out there, you are the one that we we normally shy away from the field of ufology and things like that. So where do we start? I, I guess let's start with um, last time I had talked to you, you had made the joke that you have been involved in more canceled government projects than anybody in the world. 
So that I know anyway. Um, yes. <laughs> when you got out of college and you got out of all your schooling and you started jumping into all this stuff and looking back on all of your government sponsored projects and the things that you've worked on for the U.S. government, because you do have dual citizenship, dual citizenship. Am I correct on that? Well, yeah, I've had that since, uh, oh, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago. Uh, I grew up in the United States. I didn't move here until 36 years ago. <laughs> huh. Wow. Um. What is the craziest project that they've ever come to you with that you can talk about? I mean, did, did, what is... Well, I, I figure I can talk about whatever I did because the programs were canceled. The data was classified while we were running the programs. And uh, I suppose the most classified one was <laughs> I had a one-man project uh, with a fancy name, Analysis and Evaluation of Fast and Intermediate Reactors for Space Vehicle Applications. What? Now, awesome. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, nuclear reactors, if you put them in space, they provide a lot of power per pound. Uh, and they, they left one word out of the title, and that was Soviet. What I was doing, uh, because I knew a lot about what we were doing, was trying to evaluate Soviet literature to see where are they with regard to putting nuclear power plants in space? And uh, that was kind of fun because, as it turned out, uh, the United States has put up one nuclear reactor in space, and it wasn't a very good one. The Russians... Uh, That's very comforting 30... to hear. <laughs> well, the, the Russians put up 33 of them. Uh, and when I... You know, that covers a long period of time. But uh, what was strange was that in the press, the, the one that got a lot of attention, Cosmos uh, 953, crashed in Canada. Uh, Ooh, they're, where they're, in Canada? Uh, Great Slave Lake. Ooh. In oh, the I've middle been of there. nowhere. I've been yeah, there. Why yeah. I say there's like nobody there? Yeah, you've got Hay River well, on one side and Yellowknife on the other. <laughs> well, when you're but the, the the way the Russians did things, they they would put up the reactor. It could run for six months or a year, whatever it was, and then they had a rocket attached, and they'd light it off the rocket so it would go into a higher orbit. And it would, by the time it would come down, uh, many many years later, it wouldn't be dangerous and radioactive and all that sort of stuff. Right. So. The, the one, that one, the rocket failed. And so they knew it was going to be coming down, and there were warnings. But, of course, you never know where because it's kind of a complicated question. Uh, you know, you're going round and round and round, different al altitudes and different locations and so forth. Anyway, uh, when that came down, there was a big fuss, and all the focus was on, gee, maybe the caribou will get, too much radiation wouldn't that be terrible you know what nobody talked about was the fact that uh the russians were way ahead of the united states in having nuclear power plants available to them in space and you say so what well they're a good way to power laser beam weapons particle beam weapons uh, sideband radar for monitoring ships in the ocean and so forth None of the press coverage mentioned that, which was the important thing. And I am proud to say that I correctly predicted that, yes, the Russians, I, I looked at all their research at home. What kind of tests were they running? And sometimes they camouflage. 
Well, publish scientific literature. Okay, you know, they didn't say what they were doing it for. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> we don't mention the applications, of course. <laughs> uh, of course not. <laughs> there, there was one on the effect of electromagnetic fields on uh, motion in an electrically conducting fluid. They didn't say the fluid was seawater, <laughs> really? which it was. Uh, it, well, the, there are two different outfits have built electromagnetic submarines. And if you say, well, what's that got to do with uh, space and UFOs and all that stuff? Well, if you ionize the air, you can interact with electric and magnetic fields, and you can develop a magneto-aerodynamic propulsion system, uh, <laughs> should you want to do that. And, uh, it, it, you know, you, you can do very special things. And so it, it was funny how the press covered There's a whole book. I forget the name of the book about what went on, because uh, Los Alamos got involved, and they sent research teams in to collect the wreckage and stuff like that. I mean, they didn't say, hey, we're trying to figure out what the Russians are doing. You know, it was just, we, we want to make sure that uh, all, all the dangerous material is collected. But uh, I don't even have a copy of my final report. I wrote two reports. This illustrates the kind of thing that happens. One was just a, a listing of the technically the published articles that they had written in the areas that I looked at. And my evaluation of them, they looked at radiation shielding and reactor physics and other weird stuff like that. Uh, and then my second volume, which I don't have a copy of, never did. I mean, I <laughs> turned it in and that was that. That was the one in which I predicted that they would be doing lots more of this stuff that they, even though they try to camouflage some of it with the titles that they used. Uh, and I wish I had a copy of that, but I am proud to say that I correctly predicted they were putting up nuclear reactors in space and lots of them. And what, when, uh... what, they put up a total of 33, we put up one. I what? say we. That's the, that's the American side of my personality. You see, wow. Uh, yeah. So, and and none of the press coverage ever bothered to mention that uh, what was important here on a, a world political technology level was that they were way ahead of the United States, and that gave them certain opportunities that we didn't have. Uh, and, and I should mention, you know, there's something anti-nuclear in the world out there, I think, maybe several somethings, but... Uh, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> you, you noticed when the, uh, the the satellite went by Pluto. Yes. Okay, that was a great accomplishment. I mean, that was nine and a half years to get there, for goodness sakes. Yeah, right. I didn't see one mention in the written material that I looked at that of the fact that the power supply on that satellite was a radioisotope thermoelectric generator, an RTG, using plutonium, believe it or not, to produce electricity. And all our deep space probes use them. I'm sure a lot of people thought it was solar power, except, you know, when you get that far from the sun, there ain't much solar it's power out there. There's nothing there. How big of a yield are they carrying, though? Uh, well, it's not a weapon now. It's a radioisotope. There's only 25 pounds of fuel 
only. Well, <laughs> this is not fashionable. <laughs> this, this is not fashionable uh, plutonium. It's plutonium-238. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, I wouldn't want it to land. Well, I would want it to land in my backyard as long as it didn't hit anybody on the way in. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but... It was one, Who it's one says those, they want a nuclear satellite to land in their backyard? Someone that understands what to do with it. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't have a, I don't even have a Geiger counter. I'd have to call a friend who. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, come on, check out this thing. Uh, I'll tell you, if anything came down in anybody's backyard, you'd be hearing about it, because on the way in, it would be spotted by all these systems we have to make sure that it isn't a intercontinental ballistic missile trying to knock us off you know i remember for uh, a time ford had plans or they had the idea of wanting to make a nuclear powered car um which well, i thought was crazy uh <laughs> well I, I i agree on the crazy uh, on that particular one but you know people do tend to forget that we have nuclear powered submarines and you say big deal well in world war ii you hear about the u-boats you know and all that stuff a good submarine could stay underwater for about a day because it had a diesel engine on it. It needed air for the diesel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then it had to come up. Well, when Admiral Rickover uh, headed the nuclear Navy program in the U.S., the, about, uh, what was it, 1950, I guess, 1960, uh, one went around the world underwater underwater without coming to the surface yeah but isn't that like quite common now or well now it's quite common, yeah but, but i mean the, back then no yeah. <laughs> in fact the, the the important thing the way that fits into the scheme of things here is you you've heard of that crazy acronym mutually assured destruction yes yep. mad you know yep. well the point is that if i attack you uh, and you can retaliate on me, then what have I gained? You know, and so the the whole point was, if a submarine can carry a rocket with a nuclear warhead on it, and you don't know where my submarine is, buddy, so I can retaliate. And the same goes the other way around. Your nuclear submarines can carry rockets that can attack my country. So it it, it sounds crazy. On the other hand. One of the remarkable things uh, since 1945 is that there haven't been any more weapon, nuclear weapons dropped on people. How did we manage that with all the idiots there are in the planet? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Uh, that is a feat, I would say. Well, one of the things that uh, I say about Donald Trump uh, is that anybody who suggests that the Japanese and the South Koreans should have their own nuclear weapons... I say, forget it, buddy. I don't want. I'm a nuclear guy. I don't want nuclear weapons with any more hands than they are already, and yeah. that's too many. I mean, look at that guy up in North Korea. Uh, you know, if he had a whole stockpile, uh, you know, that's not a happy thought. No, I'm pretty uh, sure he'd come after a lot more people than we want to admit. Well, well, that's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> incidentally, let me mention another thing about the nuclear navy. Uh, and there's a reason because it does have a, an association with UFOs, strangely enough. And, and that is we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. And they're huge monsters, you know. But they can operate for 18 years without refueling. 
Jesus. Think about that. Any naval captain who says, you mean I can move my ship without having to go to a gas station for 18 years, you know, or a tanker or whatever, that's, that's remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a it, win all the way around. Well, yeah. for that. Yeah, now, there's a, the connection with the UFOs is that I just had an email today from somebody who, wondering, he likes what I've written, but uh, how is it that I can explain that uh, there's so many crashes of interstellar vehicles? And I had to point out that uh, there there are two stages here. There's motherships, and there's Earth excursion modules. If you look at Ted Phillips' work with crash with the uh, landing physical trace cases, he's collected about five thousand such cases, and the ones that are on the ground are t- certainly under a hundred feet in diameter. Uh, on the other hand, we have reports of huge—I'll call them motherships because I don't know what else to call them—space carriers, maybe. But we have reports. There was one case out in Canada where somebody was able to talk to thirty witnesses in different locations and figure out. The size was someplace between 0.6 and 1.2 miles long. That's a mothership. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah, and none of the crashes, apparently, and certainly not the landings, are of big monsters. In other words, they're not the the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, which is over a thousand feet long. You know, and is I forget how many thousand tens of thousands of tons they are, but they're monstrous. Uh, so. It's not that the alien, sophisticated spaceships come in and zap, they crash. Bad pilots, you know, uh, drunken driving, maybe. <laughs> Who knows what? Drunken driving. <laughs> well, happens to the best of us. But, so, what, what I'm trying to say is that when, when you look at all this stuff, uh, and I've had a chance in all the years I've been doing this stuff to think about these things, uh, that's one of the why questions. Why would alien interstellar vehicles crash if they're so advanced they surely they can avoid crashing? Well, think of how different the environment is within the atmosphere of the Earth, where you've got the big gravity field of the planet, where you have temperatures that vary all over the place, where you have weather that varies all over the place. Uh, you know, it's an entirely different situation from between the stars where there ain't nothing, man. Uh, it, it, it's we have to think about these things is what I'm saying. Now, uh, one of the other, you know, talking about strange stories, I get people who say, professionals now, we're talking about PhDs, people with piled higher and deeper degrees. Piled <laughs> uh, higher and deeper. That's awesome. Well, isn't that what PhD means? <laughs> sure enough. Uh, I, I've had a couple of papers, and I've cited some of them in my books, Uh where they say, in today's world, you can't keep secrets anymore. Between the Internet and YouTube, you can't keep anything secret. That's, that's asinine. Uh, one thing I do have to my advantage is I spent 14 years working under security. So I have some understanding. And some of the silly arguments, well, uh, you know, we don't want to get into MJ-12, but surely those guys would have told their wives what they were doing. Hell No! I never told my wife anything classified. My wife would doesn't be bra- know stuff about me, and I'm not classified anything. <laughs> well, yeah, the point is that uh, if stuff is classified, there's a super large, strong penalty for violating the rules. Uh, it's the law. You've signed an agreement that you will not release classified material 
to anybody who doesn't have an appropriate clearance and an appropriate need to know. And you can't control what your wife says to anybody uh, or where she says it and who's around. And there are, I hate to tell you this, folks, but there are spies out there on occasion, you know. Uh, so that was one silly one. Another one is that, uh, well, if Roswell really happened, Stan, they would have to have pulled all the physicists out of the colleges to analyze the wreckage. And I say, what are you talking about? Are you really unaware that there's a heck of a lot of research done that isn't in academia, folks, but that is in the national laboratories, for example, and in classified contracts? And look, Los Alamos National Laboratory, and I have been there, has more than 6,000 employees. Their budget was well over $2 billion last year. There's Oak Ridge National Laboratory. There's Sandia. There's Livermore. There's yeah, Area the, 51 isn't nothing anymore, from what I understand. A lot of the heavy research has been moved out to, like, Australia and, and places. Like, Australia is a massive company, a country. Of just, yeah. It's just nothing out there. So they can, from what I understand, we can pretty much do whatever we want as long as we're not dropping bombs and poisoning their environment. And there's nobody well, I'm sure in Australia. About that, but, yeah. yeah. Well, look, let, let me, another example of some of this had to do with Australia. Uh, the uh, first spy satellite for the United States, the Corona spy satellite, isn't it amazing? They named it after a Japanese car. No, no, a cigar. No, a town in New Mexico near where Roswell happened actually was Corona. Mm. Anyway, the Corona. I always thought about battle. a beer, but anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Now you're talking. Uh, the 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 kicker is here that we knew that the U two flights wouldn't last forever. When we started them in the fifties, the Russians didn't have anything that flew that high and didn't have a good ear to to uh, rocket uh, missile to fire at us. We knew that wasn't going to last. So we started work on a Corona spy satellite, and the, would you believe the first 12 launches were failures? Uh, oh, yeah. I could totally see that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just saying, you know, this was all done in secret now. Mm -hmm. They didn't announce it on the radio that, oh, they, those guys goofed again, you know. Now, the 13th one was not a failure. It was a great success. It collected more data about Soviet uh, military facilities than all the U-2 flights that had flown before that. Now, did we trumpet that? What a great thing we did? No, that wasn't even announced for 30 years that the corona was successful. Uh, it, it gives you some uh, example of... Uh, care that is taken to keep secrets. And uh, when I hear people, the ancient academics and fossilized physicists, tell me that you can't keep secrets, uh, Lockheed developed the stealth fighter. They only spent $10 billion over 10 years uh, in secret. <laughs> and, and one of the, one of the uh, examples that I like about keeping secrets is General Leslie Groves ran the Manhattan Project to develop nuclear weapons. Okay, on August the uh, 6th, I think it was, 1945, 
His wife, he worked at the Pentagon. His wife gets a call from somebody in his office saying, you ought to listen, to your, your husband wants me to tell you to listen to the radio today at noon. I say radio, people, hopefully they haven't forgotten. We didn't have much television back then, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so, okay, she turns on the radio, and they announced that we had bombed Hiroshima in Japan and with this new incredible atomic bomb that the war would soon be over. Now, she, her first thought was that they wanted her to hear the program because their son was due to be sent to the Pacific to be involved in the invasion of Japan not a pleasant prospect for anybody the japanese were tough fighters and so okay that's why they told me the last line of the program this program to develop this incredible new atomic bomb was done under the direction of general leslie groves that's when she first found out what he'd been doing for the previous three years she had no clue at all no clue no holy clue cow at all. And so I, I mention that only so people understand that there's a lot, there are all kinds of highly classified programs. And, you know, uh, people, I, I used to get a kick out of showing a almost entirely blacked out 18-page document, a justification from the NSA, National Security Agency, no such agency, you know, whatever you want to say. Never says anything. <laughs> uh, there are all kinds of good... No such agency. <laughs> Choose your word, Sally. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that one. Uh, they uh, had issued a justification for withholding data after a Freedom of Information Act uh, action was brought. And so I turned page after page all blacked out documents and make not very funny remarks as I turned them out. Know. This is a hot one. We can read six words on this page. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, when we finally, uh, things changed, and we finally got them to release, in quotes, 156 pages of top-secret Umbra UFO documents. Uh, There was one little problem. You could only read one sentence per page. Everything else was whited out. (laughs) How many... What is the strangest project that you've worked on? I mean, how many projects have you worked on like that? What is the strangest thing they've come to you and said, you're a nuclear physicist, we want you to do X with Y? You know, like nuclear-powered popcorn machine or something like that. (laughs) Well, we had, we, I did work on nuclear-powered airplanes. Yeah, I want to hear about this. I build parts right now for Sikorsky, Boeing, uh, oh, yeah, you have no idea how much he wants to hear about this. So we've been talking about this for years. Go for it. Well, the program was set up in the mid-50s. And it was, there were actually two programs, General Electric, Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department, where I worked in Cincinnati, Ohio, Evendale, actually, the middle suburb, and Pratt Whitney. Now, these are the two big engine manufacturers, you understand. Mm-hmm. And so they were working on a system where you used a liquid metal-cooled reactor and you had to transfer the heat from the liquid metal to air, and then the air would drive the turbines and the jet engines. Our program used a direct cycle. Air comes in to the compressor, gets sent in through the reactor, nuclear reactor, Mm -hmm. and exhausts through the turbines. And... It would have the nice advantage that it would have unlimited range, this airplane. Again, you don't need to stop for fuel. 
And so it, it wasn't a small program. I joined General Electric ANP Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in 1956. In 1958, I checked on this, that's why I picked that year, uh, we spent $100 million. In what year? 1958. That was Good a lot of money crazy. in 1958. That's a we lot of money now. <laughs> well, yeah, to some people. <laughs> we employed 3,500 people and spent $100 million. And we ran all kinds of exciting tests. I was in radiation shielding, and I worked with the crazy materials. And shielding was a very important problem because it was way too much. You couldn't get it off the ground, you know, right. at minor detail. So, uh, and I'm sure you've heard of things like uh, gadolinium hydride and lithium yep. hydride. <laughs> now, is that uh, stuff you were working with then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Beryllium, beryllium oxide, other oddball stuff. And the program was, uh, I enjoyed my work. It was a real challenge. We, I ran experiments in Texas and in Idaho and Oak Ridge. Uh, they had a facility down there in Oak Ridge, uh, the tower shielding facility, where they could lift a, a reactor shield assembly up off the ground a couple hundred feet, which is no mean feat. Mm. Uh, it, because when, when you've got radiation being produced in a reactor, uh, you're not only worried about it going directly to kill the pilot, which isn't a good idea. You're worried about it killing the people down below the plane, too. <laughs> well, oh, no, we don't worry about that. They never crash, you know, that. <laughs> you know, uh, but they also, uh, they, uh, what, what am I trying to say here? Uh they, we did run experiments where we had a nuclear, small nuclear reactor on board a big airplane, like a B-36, which is a monstrous airplane, really big. Uh, and they would run experiments with that as a radiation source because you worry about the neutrons going out into the air and getting captured by the air molecules and producing gamma rays, which will penetrate and kill the pilot, you know. Uh, so you had to worry about things like that. So they operated. It's hard to do these tests when your reactor's sitting on the ground because it interferes with what happens with the air. So there, there was a whole special facility. I think the towers were over 200 feet high. And so you put this reactor shield assembly up there uh, and made me turned on the reactor and made measurements as a function of distance and height above the ground and all this kind of stuff. It was fun. I mean, it was exciting. You didn't know what the answers were going to be, so you're really doing research. <laughs> but uh, that, that was a, a kind of peculiar thing. Uh, the ANP program was, it, it was finally canceled. Uh, we did operate jet engines on nuclear power, believe it or not. How, how, what was the, wow. They were on the ground. Uh, they were on the, you put them on a, mounted them on a railroad car. Yep. Because uh, you gotta once they operate for a while, they become radioactive, which means you gotta handle them remotely, so you could operate the railroad car from the big assembly disassembly building and put it out where you were gonna test it. So you're saying the jet engines in. themselves would become radioactive? That's what you're saying. So uh, yes. How would you put these into a plane then? Because then wouldn't the plane wouldn't? Is that well, where the shielding you, came in? 
And well, that's where the shilling came in. You didn't put them. You didn't reload them. I mean, they'd run as long as you could run them, and uh, uh, you stay away from them. Shielding <laughs> is <laughs> okay. okay. It's pretty simple. You know, the pilot is in a shielded compartment too. <laughs> Uh, so you don't want to fly near this kind of thing. You're not using this to carry passengers, you know. Good Lord. Now, incidentally, there was also, had a little to do with it, not much, a nuclear-powered ramjet. Uh, Ling Tempko bought and some other company, and they built uh, these up, put them on a railroad car, too, uh, and uh, tested them. And, uh, hey, anything you can do. Remember, there was a Cold War. Yeah. And you could get money if you said, we're going to beat the Russians to this, you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the big thing. So there was a whole big world there of companies well, spending our money. Well, also uh, nuclear energy was, look, was looked at at one time as the cure-all. Like when, when nuclear energy first came into, like, that, like I said about Ford wanting to build a nuclear-powered car. You know, it was just, uh, yeah. it was viewed yeah. as this is the, this is the, sol- the solving the problem of all of our energy problems right here. Nuclear yeah, but you energy. know what? It, that was going on way before then. They had all kinds of quack remedies that used stuff that was radioactive way before that. So, <laughs> hey, this is talking in the 50s now. Let's True. not go back too far. <laughs> uh, the stuff I worked on. <laughs> no, there, there were I- interesting things. What, what was more exciting in a way, really? was nuclear rocket engines. Now, I worked, yeah, there were three different programs, and we didn't just talk about them. This wasn't ten guys sitting around a circle trying to figure out, how are we going to do this, guys? When I worked at Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab in Pittsburgh, we tested out at the nuclear test site, not far from uh, Area 51, <laughs> not the, out in that neighborhood anyway, not far from a great named town, Jackass Flats. How's that? <laughs> Jackass Flats? That's a real place? They're real, it was a real place, yes. It was. Uh, <laughs> well, there isn't much going on there now, but uh, the, the nuclear rocket engine, this is a fission nuclear rocket, and there were three different programs going at the same time. Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab, based in Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh, really. Uh, Aerojet General up in Sacramento, and then Los Alamos, down in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And we all operated a a successful system. Now, this was to be used as an upper stage on a rocket. It was not a launch vehicle, in other words, Mm -hmm. uh, for obvious reasons. (laughs) Yeah, you could see where that would be an issue. Uh, Yes, uh, it would be. And the point is that you can, say, triple the payload to Mars if you use a nuclear upper stage compared to a chemical upper stage. Mm-hmm. And so the best moment in my industrial life, if I can call it that, was about 1968. We tested our NRXA-6. It had a power level of 1,100 megawatts. Now, Hoover Dam, which is a huge monster, produces 2,000 megawatts. Liquid hydrogen comes in close to absolute zero, goes through the reactor, gets heated, so that it leaves at over 4,000 degrees. Quite a remarkable system. And the reactor itself was less than five feet in diameter. But at that point, isn't it just plasma? Or No, it isn't plasma. Hydrogen, it's hot hydrogen. Uh, You know, 
that gives you thrust. You kick it out the back, you run it through a nozzle, and it goes that way, and you go that way. <laughs> Oof. Well, the speed that you can go is related to the molecular weight of the exhaust product. And if you don't have any oxygen, that molecular weight is very low because hydrogen is the lightest element around. And the other nice thing about hydrogen, wherever you go in the galactic neighborhood, you're going to find hydrogen. It's the most abundant element in the universe. It's also the lightest one. So if you, you know, want, you can't find uranium everywhere. It's very heavy. Hydrogen all over the place. <laughs> I was going to say, that's one of the most abundant things, is it not? Yeah, it is, by far, the most abundant element. And so uh, that comes up in a different context with the fusion stuff, which I'll talk about in a minute. But uh, Los Alamos' system had a power level of 4,400 megawatts. Most powerful nuclear reactor we've ever tested, anybody's ever tested. Uh, and again, the exhaust temperature was over 4,000 degrees, but they canceled the program. Uh, Aerojets was a thousand. It was a flight type system. We, we didn't fly it, but we tested it on the ground. So this program went on, uh, in the early sixties, uh, in the late sixties, ended around 1970, uh, and we're not talking, you know, we're talking millions, tens of millions of dollars for each of these programs. And it was exciting. When we had our test, I was worried, <laughs> I won't call it funny, but a few weeks before we were going to test the NRX-A6, the guys in the control systems group came to me and said, hey, Stan, uh, can you find out what the nuclear heating rates are in the control elements on our reactor? Uh, obviously, we don't want them to fail. On the other hand, we don't want to waste coolant by putting it through there when it should go out through the nozzle. So uh, they made it sound like fairly urgent. So within a week, I managed to get some experiments done down at our mock-up reactor and gave them all the data they wanted. And it looked good. We're, we're not going to melt anything, I don't think. I don't, um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't well, think. <laughs> they, they played, they, they ran the... Uh, test data over the PA system at Westinghouse. Everybody had a clearance, and uh, they nominal after five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, nominal operating pressure, temperature, power level, and there was a limit how long you could run because the longer you run, the more radioactive you become, and so the more hydrogen you have to have available to you to cool that system because you don't want it to melt. Mm-hmm. Melting things is not a good idea. No, I can see it would be bad. Stuff around here and there. <laughs> so uh, we we didn't know whether the fuel elements were going to come out of that thing or not. Who knew? Uh, so we're listening, and five minutes, things are nominal. Ten minutes, the temperature, pressures, everything's what you want it to be. Fifteen minutes, and we're starting to feel good and uh, 20 minutes, and it went to full 60 minutes. That was limited by how much hydrogen you could store, liquid hydrogen at the facility. But uh, I realized this, I'm thinking about this, you know, and how pleased I was. Uh, Son of a gun, if that thing fails, they might blame me for that. (laughs) (laughs) I told them it was safe. The heating rates were low enough so they didn't have to worry about it. But uh, that was one of those situations. I mean, they canceled the program. And oh yeah, you came out of that, it scot free. You're fine. <laughs> well, it, 
something similar sort of happened. Okay, what am I going to do? They canceled the program. The, the operation was a success, you know, but the patient died kind of thing. <laughs> and and awesome. I got to find got to find me a job. So I uh, check around to make a long story short. I got a nice offer from McDonnell Douglas Astronautics in Santa Monica, California. I was working in Pittsburgh area. And my job was going to be believe it or not, to try to figure out how flying saucers worked, which was a great challenge, and I was really intrigued by it. And they were using money from the uh, the space, the manned orbiting laboratory program, which was kind of like the uh, space uh, station that's going around the world. You know, it was, it was competition with NASA, really. But uh, I'm driving across the country to take up my job, this exciting, challenging job, where my boss was very interested in UFOs and even written a paper. He was one of these Ph.D. guys, but he was sharp. And halfway across the country, I hear on the radio that they just canceled the MOLE program, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program. Oh, Jesus. So I walk in at McDonnell Douglas a couple of days later, and the first thing the gal says, uh, I brought along my offer letter, of course, and she says, you realize we just laid off 5,000 people. I said, yeah, I know that. They kept me for three months, uh, and one thing I did a big study on was uh, during that time was on government documents about magnetoaerodynamics. Uh, what we were talking about before. Hmm. And I wound up with 900 references, which shocked me. Uh, admittedly, an ICBM coming into the atmosphere ionizes the air, so you want to know how that affects where it's going to land, because it'll affect the drag. <laughs> it's very important in determining whether you reach the target or not. But uh, it was uh, that convinced me, incidentally. I had already been speaking for three years, but I was working at the same time. And after that three-month stint, I decided that, uh, you know, i got to control my own life. So I was making calls early in the morning. I'm a cheapskate, but between 6 and 8 in the morning, a call from <laughs> California to the East Coast, much cheaper than during the day, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, booking lectures and then booking piggyback lectures on top of those. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. I don't do any big mailings anymore. I used to mail out a thousand letters at a time. Uh, postage was cheaper then, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you can just do it by email. Well, yeah, but Send back all. then <laughs> it was a problem uh, in, in the, uh, say, 1970. No so email. That was the start of your, your career getting into the world of ufology, though. That was where... No, okay. no. I was already in it three years. Okay. Well, I got into that by accident, too. I mean... Yeah, how I, did you... How did that... You I think mean, I how did this fought it, of course? No, well, okay. but still. You mean right place, right time? Or was it something that was, you know, uh, well, tertiary subject? Well, let me subject? tell you. Uh, I uh, was ordering books from a mail-order bookstore... My wife and I often bought books, and uh, I needed one more book on this order in 1958. Uh, one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. 
And there was one, the report on unidentified flying objects by Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruppelt. He'd been head of the Air Force Project Blue Book in the early 50s. This was in 58. So I ordered a bunch of books, and the book was basically free because it was two ninety nine marked down to a dollar, but shipping would have been more than that, and that saved me the shipping cost. So I read the book. It intrigued me, partly because I was a big fan of the Air Force. They were the co-sponsor of the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Program, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the United States Air Force. So they're the good guys, you know, that was my thought. Uh, and... Uh, I also thought that uh, I didn't have an opinion about flying saucers because I didn't know anything. You know, that's a strange attitude. I realize that. You're, everybody has opinions about everything. but I No, think no that's not really a strange first. opinion. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I, I shared, I was impressed with the book. It didn't fully convince me about flying saucers, but I shared the book. I was young. I was 24. That seems a long time ago. <laughs> and... <laughs> I shared a copy, I, I loaned the, the book to my next-door neighbor, Charlie, who was an engineer who was 10 years older than I was, and a very good engineer. And uh, he was more impressed than I was, and that impressed me. And 10 years later, he and his wife came to a lecture that I gave to an Institute of Electrical Electronic Engineers group. And the first thing they said to me was, we knew you and you didn't believe in flying saucers, <laughs> which, which was nice to hear. Anyway... Uh, I moved to California uh, because the the, uh, nuclear rocket program was canceled. And at the University of California Berkeley Library, I found a copy of Project Blue Book's special report number 14. Biggest study ever done for the Air Force. I had already read 10 books. None of them had mentioned it. This is crazy. And I looked at the book, and... About 250 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. I was in data heaven. Uh, I, I like data. Uh, and, <laughs> well... You, I can you respect that. Yeah. <laughs> already. Uh, but it also had the press release. The guy who put it together included the press release that the Air Force put out when this study was finished in 1955. Biggest study ever done on flying saucers for Project Blue Book. And there's the Secretary of the Air Force, Donald Quarles, if anybody cares, uh, saying in the press release that on the basis of this study, we believe that no objects such as those publicly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. What? I had the report. The unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. That's not a round-off uh, of three, you know. That's a big jump. Uh, yeah, and they also, I mean, he was lying. Uh, let's put it the way it was. <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. He's a liar. Yeah, uh, and they also did a quality evaluation of all the sightings. They looked at 3,201 cases. That's a lot of cases. And all the guys who did the final report evaluation all worked for uh, Battelle Memorial Institute, which is a major research and development firm. They were all scientists. And they also did a cross-comparison. They asked an obvious question. Well, okay, is there really any difference between the unknowns, the only ones you're interested in, 
and the knowns. Maybe we just missed the boat someplace. And then there's Maybe the known unknowns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, what they found was that the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. That made me angry. I don't like being lied to. And sometimes under security, you've got to tiptoe around the facts a little bit. But flat out lying... So that made me determined to get at the facts, and I joined APRO and NICAP, the two big groups way back then, to get their newsletters as much as anything else. And uh, uh, that job got canceled, too, and then I moved to Indianapolis, where I worked for General Motors' Allison Division on military compact reactor programs. You'd take this one apart, transport it by airplane, you could set up a source of power any place in the world. Pretty neat. Uh, anyway, Frank Edwards was in Indianapolis. Well, it, it's creative. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's a miniature nuclear reactor. Work. Yeah. It more or less and, worked. <laughs> you, I'm a yes, little concerned you, about the less worked. You've said that more than once this evening. <laughs> no. Well, you know, it, 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 you can have very good, solid engineering, and you can have lousy management sometimes. <laughs> you know? Oh, all right. I could, yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, but when you're dealing with nuclear, the it less the, the more part's fine, but when you hear the less part, you get a little bit more concerned. <laughs> well, yeah, and I nuclear power is safe, and so is driving an automobile. But I haven't heard anybody say, well, stop manufacturing automobiles because look how many people got killed last year in automobile accidents. Mm. It's deadly. Well, cost versus benefit, well, I don't know how you put this, but anyway, uh, the uh, the nuclear systems uh, do work, and we've spent tons of money on them, uh, but as I was pursuing the, the UFO picture, uh, I also met Frank Edwards, who wrote a book, uh, Flying Saucer, Serious Business. And I got to know him in Indianapolis. He was a journalist who knew all kinds of people everywhere. He traveled a lot. Sharp guy. Uh, and then I got my job with Westinghouse after the project at General Motors was canceled. I mean, how many people can say they, they've been uh, discharged by GE, GM, Westinghouse? <laughs> you, worked for like, you worked for some of the giants at the time. I'm waiting for Coca-Cola yeah. to pop up here any time. Uh, if no, no, if no, you worked no at Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola with radiation, I'm not drinking Coke anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, the point is that I dug, uh, I called Frank. I decided I wanted to go public. I was in Pittsburgh, after all, and uh, went to I'm working for Westinghouse, and it's a Westinghouse town, really. And I called Frank. Give me names of some people, Frank. I want to go public. I was fed up with these guys lying. And so he gave me some names, and one of them was a producer. This is honest to God. The producer of a radio show called Contact. Uh, and it was on KDKA, the biggest station in Pittsburgh. And I called them, and the response was, uh, don't call us, we'll call you. But less than a month later, they called me. <laughs> At 6.30, could I do the 7 o'clock show, please? 
uh, I didn't live far from the station, fortunately. And they called me because somebody canceled, and I wondered, I've always wondered, how many people did they have to call before they got somebody foolish enough to say it? That was that close, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, at, at 6.30 to do a 7 o'clock show, and i got to get there and so forth. So, okay, I I said yes. And I did the show. I wasn't as good then at handling the nasty, noisy, negative as, as I am now. But anyway, somebody at work at Westinghouse, a woman technician, had a book review club, and they were reading Frank's book. And she asked me if she heard the program, and she asked me, hey, could I give a talk in her living room? To her book review club. Sure, why not? That was my first talk. Then I did that show several times again and did a lot more talks. And one day I'm riding with Joanne, a supervisor at Westinghouse, uh, had a PhD, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, I told her, gee, I'd really like to speak at Carnegie Mellon University. And she said, well, did you talk to the dean? No, I talked to Dr. So-and-so, and he wasn't interested. She said, Stan, the dean's my husband. He's heard you on the radio. Why don't you call him? So, okay, I called her husband, and uh, we set a date a month Don't you later. know who I am? <laughs> no, I, uh, nobody did. Uh, we set a date a month later, and the last question he asked me, we were going over details. It was going to be in the afternoon, which meant I'd have to take some time off work. Hey, I don't want to lose income. So he asked me how much did I want. I said, "Oh, how about a hundred dollars?" Thinking he'd knock me down to fifty, uh, but it would be something. And sold. Then he told me because I knew his wife. Uh, I he told me what he was paying the other speakers in the same series in which I was speaking. Fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred, sixteen hundred. No, no, it worked out well. Uh, okay, I learned something. I did the talk. It was very well received, and he was very pleased. And he wrote the agent through whom he had booked those other speakers, told them what a wonderful job that I did. He booked me at the Engineering Society of Detroit. Now, how much more respectable can you get than that, guys? You know, At that point, uh, not much. <laughs> $300 and uh, expenses. Oh, and expenses. Wow. Yeah, and so I go there. It turns out they were sold out uh, a couple of weeks in advance for 1,008 people for dinner and a talk, and there wasn't one negative question. That was very encouraging to me because I had to respect the Engineering Society of Detroit. I mean, even though I buy Japanese cars still. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I did that talk, and I finally I asked management at Westinghouse, uh, I, I need some some guidance here. I'd love to do more lectures because I found out I enjoy being on the stage. I'm a ham. Uh, and I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my clearance. You know, I've got bills to pay, et cetera, et cetera. Give me some rules. So they come back to me with uh, basically three rules. You can say what you please on your time. You can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. But we'd like you to start your lecture with a disclaimer. The views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. Who could ask for anything more? That's great. Well, I did. <laughs> I got a call from a, a colleague, a radiation fueling specialist on nuclear rockets at Los Alamos. 
hey, Stan, I hear you're giving lectures all over the place. I said, yeah. How about speaking at the local chapter of the American Nuclear Society here? Oh, I'd love to. No, I mean on an expense account, Stan. Oh, well, I don't make those decisions. Let me talk to management. They said yes. I went from Pittsburgh to Los Alamos, from Pennsylvania to New Mexico, with the express purpose of giving a lecture, flying saucers are real, illustrated lecture, of course, to the American Nuclear Society section in Los Alamos. We had over 500 people there, no negative questions. That encouraged the heck out of me. So uh, I didn't get into the business because I planned it that way, anything but. But the response was so good, and I did find out. I, I, I hate to admit it, but I was worried the first year that I was speaking that uh, somebody's going to come up with some stuff that's going to prove them what I'm saying isn't true. And that never happened, uh, fortunately. I'm careful in the first place. <laughs> uh, my basic rule is have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. Mm. Uh, that dates back to the fifth grade when my teacher told the class that the sun sits still and the planets move around the sun. And I piped up and, uh, no, Miss Gutkin, I just read in our encyclopedia. You bought in volumes of the encyclopedia for 49 cents a volume at the supermarket. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> uh it said that the whole solar system is moving around the center of the galaxy. Oh, I don't think so, no. And she chewed me out a little bit, and I wasn't accustomed to being chewed out by teachers. But uh, So the next day, I brought in the volume of the encyclopedia, and she conceded that, well, maybe that's really the way it is. Okay. Uh, would you believe I saw her at the 50th anniversary of my high school <laughs> graduation? She was still alive which surprised me, and uh, they're in Linden, New Jersey. And I gave her a modified version of, uh, you know, the story, and uh, she didn't remember me. She remembered my cousins. Uh, my uncle was a doctor in town, stuff like that. But the lesson I learned was very clear. When I was in high school, I carried that lesson. I was in high school debating. And uh, again, have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear. And so uh, that 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 was the basic rule. And I've only had eleven hecklers in over seven hundred and fifty lectures. I was about to ask you now that we're into the phase where you're talking ufologies and going to these conferences and stuff like that. Of all of the years that you've done this, of all of the shows that you've been to, of all of the conferences you gave, and of all of the, the all of the speeches and everything, is there any that really stick out in your head as as crazy? Like you know, th th like this is the most unusual thing that's ever happened to me, or this is the craziest thing that's well, ever happened to these conferences. There, there were a couple. When I was speaking to the uh, State University of New York in Cortland, New York, uh, go to the question and answer period. We had a packed house. Guy stands up, and I call on him. I, no written questions or anything like that. And uh, he starts off with a bang. He says, I've never heard so much nonsense in one night in my life. Great way to and start. And thank you for coming. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I, fortunately, I, I couldn't have told you in advance what I would say if somebody said that, but I can tell you what I did say, which was, 
Can you be a bit more specific, please, sir? <laughs> you said that Betty and Barney Hill were taken to Zeta Reticuli and back in two hours. I said, no, sir. What I said was they were taken on board a craft for two hours and released. They didn't go anywhere. He came up with two more you said that, which were total baloney. Then somebody in the audience shouted, how about taking some sensible questions? <laughs> this, <laughs> wow. guy gets, this guy gets up and walks out. And I said, I'll answer your question, but who was that? He was a professor of physics. <laughs> Oops. He, he hadn't heard what I said. You know, so that was one experience that stood out uh, and gave me confidence, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, a second one was I spoke to the Gulf Research Labs Management Club in Pittsburgh, and it was dinner and a talk, and a guy interrupts me five minutes into my talk. Why don't you talk about whatever? And I said, I'll talk about that later. And the second time and a third time, finally the boss man, who I'm sitting next to at the head table for this dinner thing, uh, let him finish. So, okay, I finish, and I look at this guy who's chomping at the bit. Well, I'm sure one could come to other conclusions than the ones you came to. I said, well, let me see now. As I recall, you hadn't read any of those five large-scale scientific studies that I mentioned, right? Uh, yes, that's right. And, of course, I've read all five of them. I gave you my conclusions. I gave you the sources of data on which I based those conclusions. You have read none of them. Whose opinion is worth more? There was a long silence. <laughs> Gave me great satisfaction. I wasn't oh, nasty. But, you know. So you have Did you drop the like mic that. and walk off? <laughs> no. Doom. No. Uh, now, what I have found is that, well, I'll give you another example. I was on a campus, and uh, uh, I asked the professor, I was speaking in a class, I said, can you count the votes here? Because I want to poll the audience here, but I want them to vote with their eyes closed. And I don't want to say what the vote is, but if you count, then you know nobody can say it's me and my bias or whatever. How many of you think that most people don't believe in UFOs? It turns out 80% of the people. The next question, this is with their eyes closed. The next question was, how many of you do believe in flying saucers. I prefer the term, as a matter of fact. Uh, because all flying saucers are UFOs, not all UFOs are flying saucers. All great-grandfathers are men, but not all men are great-grandfathers. You know, I happen to be one, as it happens. But uh, uh, <laughs> 80%, 80% said they believed in flying saucers. But 80% thought most people didn't believe in flying saucers. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and I've had, I had a guy at uh, University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Uh, after my lecture, I just, it was a packed house, people sitting in the aisles and kind of uh, I'd, I'd answered, uh, I had given some data. My name from is Eric Calipo, Phillips, I'm the brand manager for the Strobe. Which show that more, there are more believers than non believers. This is back a number of years ago. And so somebody in the audience, the first question I think was, how about polling this audience? Oh, well, I said, usually it's, I'm the one who sticks his neck out. Uh, well, he said, I don't think the audience would mind. Well, okay. 
how, I'll ask two questions then. How many think some UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? And how many think no UFOs are intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft? So uh, better than 90% said some are. Mm-hmm. Fewer than 10% said none are. So it gives you confidence when you can go into classes, when you can talk in front of audiences, when you can uh, get them to flat out. I mean, what happens at the end of my lectures usually is I will ask. I say, uh, I want to. I, I get the first question. How many of you believe that you have seen what I would describe as a flying saucer, having defined my terms earlier? Just raise your hand. I won't ask your name or anything, but I'll just point and count. How many? So the hands go up barely over their heads. I look to my left, and one, two, three, four, five. When I get to the far right, the hands go up more rapidly because it becomes obvious that plenty of people have had sightings. (laughs) Typically 10%, which shocks a lot of people. Hmm. But then I say, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% 90% of the hands go down. If anybody left, I'll say, uh, how many of you were in the military at the time? And if there's still a hand up, uh, want to tell us about it. Oh, uh, uh, no. One, <laughs> well, one guy in, in front of 1,300 people at East Texas State University uh, uh, said, I can't. They told me not to say anything, which was a oh, great one. <laughs> <laughs> then in Indiana... Uh, in Indianapolis, as a matter of fact, uh, I the guy raises his hand. He has had a sighting now, and he was in the military at the time. I say, uh, and I point to him, and he says, "They took my pictures." That's all he said. Mm-hmm. And so I said, "Well, I'm sure the audience would love to hear the rest of the story. I'm not asking your name. You don't need to stand up." He brings him a microphone, and he remained seated and said he was flying a four-engine Air Force plane across the Pacific. There's another plane 20 miles ahead, radioed back. There's a saucer heading your way. They had gun cameras. They took pictures. They radioed the base to which they were flying, told them they were bringing in pictures. They land. The pictures get taken. The crew doesn't take the film and go to the drugstore, you know. (laughs) Not that kind of a thing. And uh, then they get uh, debriefed and told never to say anything. Now, that guy, he obviously wasn't looking for anything. You know, he, he was being honest. And I, I would bet 99% of the people in the audience believed him. So I've had experiences like that that help reinforce my own view that it's okay. I'm not sticking my neck out too far. Uh, Have you like ever that. had anybody come up to you and be like, yeah, I am an alien from Zeta Reticuli or... You know, have have you had those kind of people come up to you? And if so, how have you dealt with them? No, I, I haven't, although I had one guy say, um, uh, how about coming over to my house? I work for some agencies and uh, <laughs> like to talk to you and stuff. And, and they won't find the body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it was at a college lecture in a small town. And, uh, okay. He talked some more. He sounded a pretty sharp guy. He said they were keeping eyes on me, keeping their eye on me, but uh, 
what I was doing was okay, so there's no difficulty. And I've never been harassed by the government. You weren't even uh, chased out of California by the FBI, as we were talking about before? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was crazy. We moved here in 1980. And we moved here. We were living in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. And we had no family out there besides our own kids. And uh, I was lecturing, and uh, it, it was, how should I say this? I lost track of where I was going with that story. But, uh, oh, uh, he, the people there, uh, treated me so well uh, that I, I've never worried about people coming at me, you know, with the gun. I, I did have one, well, reminded me. I didn't want to remember this one, but... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, I'm looking at an audience. got a big crowd, a nice facility, and somebody at the back gets up and walks over to the side and comes down along the wall heading toward the front now I'm speaking I can see him uh, you know I've got to keep going and what I'm doing I'm not gonna say hey idiot what are you doing <laughs> you know? um, and but I'll tell you something that one time I was worried because here I am I'm behind a podium if that guy's got a gun or something uh, what can I do I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm powerless up here. Well, he came down toward the front, and then he sat down in an aisle seat, and that was the end of it. But I will admit that I was worried. Now, the story about the FBI, I don't know who started the, the, the rumor, but several people came at me, including J. Allen Hynek had heard it, too, that... Uh, the reason I moved to Canada was that I was being chased out because of my UFO activities. The FBI made threatening noises and stuff like that. Now, that is total baloney, not a, not a grain of truth in it. I moved to, from here, from California here, not because of the climate, obviously. <laughs> I'm in <laughs> Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada, but no. we have great summers, but uh, winters are a little rugged. Yeah, they're not very long either. <laughs> Well, oh, you noticed that. <laughs> and uh, the reason I moved here, and I, I got asked by somebody, I keep getting this question, you know, why did you move to New Brunswick? Uh, my wife is from New Brunswick, and she's one of nine kids. And when we moved here, her parents and five of her siblings lived here. So, and we could buy a house here for less than half of what we paid for one in California. And California passed Prop 13. Some of your listeners may know about that. Would you believe there was a time when the state of California was running a budget surplus? Yeah. And some That's politicians got... Yeah, it was. <laughs> Before 1980. Uh, and some of the politicians were upset about that because the state shouldn't be keeping our money. So they passed a proposition that would reduce the increase in property taxes to like 1% a year while you still own the property. People's taxes were going up sky high and it wasn't worth any more to them, you know, and the proposition passed. 
Well, that money that reduced the tax income of various and sundry agencies and uh, it, it funded a lot of my junior college talks. And there are a lot of junior colleges in California. So we were coming back here every summer to see my wife's family and stuff and decided, you know, we, we could buy a house back there for half of what the house here costs. And uh, so that's why we moved. And the kids got grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. We had a family reunion, uh, 65 people. I you think know. you were coerced to say all this. I think the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We moved here, and I, you know what? I never regretted the move. Yeah, we have rough winters, but I can pay somebody to do the snow. But we have wonderful people. The University of New Brunswick is two miles from where I live. Largest, uh, oldest English language university in Canada. My daughter went there, got a degree there. Uh, it's a great town. Fredericton is the capital of New Brunswick. Come on out and visit us, folks. It's on the beautiful St. John River. Uh, no, I, I've never regretted the move. I used the university library. I've lectured over there. Well, I'm going to ask you about one story, and if you don't want to cover it, I'll edit this out of the show because we pre-record everything. But I would, I, when I had called and talked to you a couple of weeks ago, you'd had a story about somebody that had come to your house or something like that when your family was oh, there, yeah. <laughs> and, and you got a little nervous about the guy, and you wanted to get him out of there, yes. so you got him a tank of gas, and then something screwy happened or something with the guy? Well, yeah, a guy <laughs> that I didn't know knocks on the door, family's there as it happens, and he wants to talk to me, so he comes in, and we're sitting in the family room, and he's talking to me, and I'm getting weary of this guy. He sounds a little off, to say the least. And he came there all the way from Detroit, which is... Not me. <laughs> no. And so uh, and we're talking, and I'm trying to figure out, how can I get him out of here without causing a ruckus? Because i got kids and my wife and so forth so uh, he talks about he, he needs gas I said I tell you what why don't you follow me down to the gas station and I'll buy you a tank of gas and he accepted that offer and I was grateful he had a dog in the car so <laughs> don't ask me to explain that anyway we go to the gas station and I pay for the gas and he takes off and I was so relieved. The next day I get a call from the state highway patrolman in Maine, our neighboring state. It's 73 miles from here to the border. I was going to say, and it's I only a nine-hour drive from my house to New Brunswick. <laughs> well, it, it, it's a long ways. Anyway, the, the cop is asking me, they found my name and address and phone number in this guy's wallet. Oof. They had arrested him, and they didn't know. He was at uh, Loring Air Force Base, or what used to be Loring Air Force Base, and behaving in ways that he shouldn't have been. I don't know what he was doing, and I didn't care. So what was my connection with this guy? And you could tell the police were uh, <laughs> kind of wary of what's going on here. And so I explained that I had been very... Uh, I gave him my background and stuff. I had a clearance. I wanted to make sure to mention that. <laughs> and uh, let him know that I had, was so glad to get rid of this guy because he was a character. Well, he'd, he'd gone from where I lived, 
back across the border and up to Loring. And they, uh, it turns out, they checked on him, and he had an arrest record someplace. He was wanted by the cops somewhere. I forget what town. Uh, not around here, that's for sure. And it, it, it is the one time when I've really been concerned. Because what do you do in those circumstances? You know, I don't even own a gun, for that matter. You know, and uh, but. You know, one time, I've lived here 36 years, uh, I can't complain. You know, and he wasn't from here. So that was the one time when I was I, mean, I was concerned when the guy's walking in the auditorium. But I have no obvious reasons for concern. You know, I don't see a gun or any threatening gestures or so forth. This guy I'm listening to, and he's got something wrong with him. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Was he like, was this like a, like, I, I don't know, a men in black type of encounter or what, you know, what was he talking well, to you about? Just he, he was talking about UFOs and he was laying all kinds of stuff on me that, that supposedly was the truth. He had it all figured out. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. You know, and, you know, I don't know what am I going to do with this guy because he, he just gave off an aura of, somebody to worry about uh you know I, I go to the door i answer the door what do i expect anybody to give me a hard time or whatever and he didn't start ranting and raving but the longer i talked to him the more concerned i got so you know these are what can i say the hazards of the trade so to speak mm-hmm. but can Considering how many people I've met, over 750 lectures in all 50 states, 10 provinces, and 18 other countries, number 19 coming up, I'm going to Bulgaria. Really? Everybody goes to Bulgaria. Yeah. Hey, Dick, you want to see the world? Be a ufologist. <laughs> well, you I know, barely I've make lect- it out of New England, so. <laughs> I, I've lectured not only in all 50 states, but also in places like Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. In Turkey, in Korea, in Argentina, in Brazil. How are they, like when you go to Saudi Arabia and you go to those kind of countries, how are they about this kind of stuff with you? I mean, is there is there attitude about... They're very good. They're, they're is there a different good. attitude over there? Or, you know, are there, are there is there skepticism different? Or, you know, how... There, there isn't that much skepticism, at least the people who come to my programs. Uh it was kind of funny, and with Saudi Arabia, I, I get a phone call from a guy I'd never heard of, inviting me to the Global Competitiveness Conference, the fifth annual one in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And you know, I've never heard of the Global Competitiveness. Like, what the conference. hell is that? <laughs> yeah, uh, right. And so uh, I talk, we talk some more, and they're going to pay my way and stuff, and there'll be five of us speaking uh, at this conference. And uh, then I got worried uh, because I'm telling family and other people, Stan, have you forgotten you're Jewish? You think they'll let you in there? Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, that's uh, right. You know, I don't know. So I sent an email, and I said, look, uh, I got a problem here. Family people are asking me. Kind of a family condition. (laughs) uh, You know, they don't want me to, to wind up at your doorstep, and I can't come in kind of thing. I got a very nice email back saying, look, we've had a number of Jewish speakers. It's no problem, and uh, don't worry about it. And I didn't, and I went, and 
very well received, and they had this little three less than three hour symposium there. People were paying a thousand bucks to go to this conference. It lasted Holy several days. Cow. It was rich people. I mean, I uh, guess so. <laughs> you know, uh, highly placed people, and uh, I was treated very well as everybody was. And it could have been uh, my father's cousin's club that was meeting. You know, Jews and Arabs are both Semites. They're cousins, if you will. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But it went very well. And uh, Michel Kaku was there, as a matter of fact. Jacques Vallée was there. Uh, you met Michel Kaku? Why do you say that so surprisingly? I'm just, he's, I, I mean, he... I, <laughs> I don't, he I would, did a radio I show, and, and I was on down. his radio I was on his radio show, too. Oh, my God. Uh, You've rubbed uh, elbows with some pretty amazing people. Hey, I, I'm at the Boston airport, and I see Jimmy Carter over there. You know, the guy who used to be president. Wow. And I look around. There's a Secret Service man. It was pretty obvious. And I went over and talked to him. And uh, I found out that uh, I mentioned something. I, I commended him for the work that his, I'll call it a foundation. I forget what they call it, but. They've been building housing and stuff around the country. It was mm-hmm. a commendable activity. He was not a money grubber, if you will. And uh, and then I mentioned something about uh, secrecy, because I knew he had been in the nuclear submarine business, and uh, uh, mentioned the CIA. And he shared a little thing with me that uh, you can't, the president can't always trust what a CIA director tells him. That's why when he appointed the CIA director, he was a, an Annapolis classmate of his. And that's a very tight bond, just as West Point is, you know. Uh, it's a lifetime bond. Uh, and uh, he was saying, that's why I appointed him, because I know you can't trust what other people say, which was an interesting bit of insight, if you will. And... Uh, I've been lucky in that people have been helpful to me. Uh, General Nathan Twining was the Air Force uh, chief of staff at one time, and he was a member of MJ-12. And I talked to families of all the members of MJ-12. They were all dead, so I couldn't talk to them. <laughs> I don't know how to communicate across that border. You know? <laughs> uh, and so I talked to General Twining's daughter, and... Uh, she was very helpful to me about a couple of things. She gave me the name of his pilot, of Twining's pilot, and I was able to locate him and talk to him and got information from him about some of the documents and language and so forth and so on. So I have enjoyed talking to people who know something. General Exxon was commander of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And he answered some questions for me. Um, people are nice. Uh, I asked the Truman Library, um, is there anybody still alive? This is several years ago. Anybody still alive who worked for President Truman? Uh, and they gave me the name of George Elsie. And it turned out he worked for Roosevelt first and then for Truman the entire time he was in the White House. And I called him and I said, look, I've got these documents, MJ-12 stuff. Uh, I don't know whether they're real or not, but I'd sure like to have the opinion of somebody who worked there at the time. Can I? Could I send them to you and then check back with you later? Sure. Okay, I did that. 
And three weeks later, I went to call him, and suddenly I realized if he knew anything, he couldn't tell me anything. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so I had to be asking the questions very carefully. Not do you think these documents are genuine, but uh, did you see anything about these documents that would lead you to believe that they were uh, phony? Uh, no, he didn't, as a matter of fact. I said, this name's 12 people. Uh, you knew who all those people were. Oh, yes. Uh, do you have any reason to believe that if something like Roswell had happened, that Truman would not have named some of those people to such a high-level group? So you got to walk on eggshells. Uh, yeah, exactly right. And, uh, wow. and he was a very helpful guy. And uh, I got a book that he wrote. He later became head of the American Red Cross. A very respectable individual. But it's nice to get things from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, one of the documents I dealt with uh, involved, uh, I, I thought, involved somebody who was executive secretary of the National uh, Security Council. And it, I said, I, I think he prepared this in place of the guy whose name is on it because the guy was out of the country. And he said, well, those guys sat next to each other at every meeting of the National Security Council. They each got copies of everything the other guy wrote. Hmm. And, no, I think uh, they certainly would have written this little memo. Uh, getting it from somebody who was there, not somebody who heard it from A, you heard it from B, you heard it from C kind of thing. Uh, was very helpful. And so I found people have been uh, extraordinarily nice. And I, I've been to 20 archives. Uh, and archivists can be very helpful. Uh, and and, and the, look, uh, all this stuff is in my books. And I've yeah. got a new book coming out, you'll be happy to know. Coming, I'll get my first copy on Monday, believe it or not. This leads uh, me to a question from one of our listeners. That I've got one question that really, one listener that said, please ask this one question for me. And um, and I had mentioned a long time ago we might be interviewing you. And he said, the only thing I really want to know about is there was some kind of a situation between you and Philip Class, who I believe passed away in 2005. He was uh, yes, he one did. of the renowned skeptics uh, fielder at the time. Senior avionics editor for Aviation Week and Space Technology. Well, so you know him. Yes. Now, <laughs> of course I know him. He paid you $1,000 over a bet or something like that? What is the story behind that? He actually well, he made a bet with you, and then he, apparently he lost the well, bet and he actually exactly, paid you. It wasn't exactly a bet. It was a challenge. Uh, when we better. first got one of the MJ-12 documents, the important one, he said that uh, maybe you didn't notice, but that the, the Cutler-Twining memo from... Bobby Cutler, who was Ike's national security advisor to General Twining, uh, saying a meeting about NSCMJ-12 was going to take place during uh, a scheduled meeting instead of after it is originally planned, words to that effect. And Class writes me and says, perhaps you didn't notice that that was done in the large pica type, but the NSC used only the small uh, elite type. And here, I'll close, I've got nine examples for you. I challenge you to find any other documents done in the same size and style type and meeting certain other qualifications. It's got to be signed, certain date frame, etc. Uh, and I will pay you $100 each up to a maximum of 10 
Well, I went to my files and immediately found 20 documents from that time frame from the Eisenhower Library that were done in pica type. They didn't meet, only two of them met all these conditions. So I sent him the two. I was teasing him, if you will. I was going to the Eisenhower Library, and I, within a few weeks, he gave me 60 days. So, so I did that, and I copied 14 documents meeting all his criteria, the same size and style, type and signed, et cetera, et cetera. And I sent him copies and an invoice for $1,000, because he, he set a limit of 10. Uh, I wish he hadn't, because I'd be rich now. <laughs> anyway, uh, he sent Bankrupted me... Bankrupted the guy? <laughs> no, Phil was doing okay. He, he sent me a check for $1,000. Now, he'd told lots of people about challenging me, and none of them about paying me. And as a matter of fact, he got very upset when I included a copy of his check in one of my books, Flying Saucers and Science, uh, and in Top Secret Magic also, as a matter of fact. He threatened to sue me, blah, blah, blah. His father had been an attorney, and so, you know, you know the threatening letters lawyers love to send. You know, there is a, <laughs> there is a document out there at debunker.com. There's a PDF that he wrote, or a letter that he wrote that's in PDF form that tells, apparently, that tells his part of the story or something like that. Did you know about that? I, well... I'm not sure I did. I've seen a lot of stuff since. This, this okay. you know, goes back back a ways. And the interesting thing to me is that I've been to his papers are at the American Philosophical Society Library mm -hmm. in uh, Philadelphia, and uh, it, it's about thirty-five boxes of material, uh, archive boxes. There is no Stanton Friedman file, and we corresponded for twenty years. <laughs> I don't think he wanted anybody to know. Now, the other thing I did check on, a typical Phil class, he had never, ever been to the Eisenhower Library. Now, how can you say that all the documents are done in FICA type, or in elite type, if you've never been there? So this was they all over... A t this was all over type, typeset. Is, is what, that, that was his argument for skepticism. Typeface. It was yeah. typeface. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And he'd never been to the Eisenhower Library. I oh double-checked with the archivist. Uh, this is typical of the intellectual bankruptcy of the pseudoscience of anti-ufology. Doesn't that sound nice? At least it was an easy paycheck for you. <laughs> uh, well, it, it was, yeah, I mean, I, had a, I was going there anyway, so it helped pay the cost of the trip. But, uh, <laughs> but Phil, as a matter of fact, my new book with Kathleen Martin, we, this is our third book, uh, is Fact, Fiction, and Flying Saucers. And uh, Phil is one of the people we talk about, Dr. Edward U. Condon of the Condon Study is another, and Dr. Donald Howard Menzel, the Harvard University professor of astronomy, who wrote three anti-UFO books and whom I discovered because I believe in getting to the heart of the matter. I put the Harvard archives. I had to get th permission from three different people to look at his papers. And I discovered that he told Jack Kennedy he had a longer continuous association with the National Security Agency. 30 years of anybody in the country. Hmm. Did classified hmm. work for all kinds of people. They had to go there to see this. This stuff wasn't scanned. Maybe it is now. I don't know. But scanners are faster. But... Uh, and so uh, we talk about 
uh, class and his attacks on several people like Jim McDonald uh, and others uh, and uh, Condon. Uh, I had some correspondence with Condon, and that's in his papers at the American Philosophical Society Library. And uh, he he once even foolishly said there can't be anybody visiting Earth for 10,000 years, which is an utterly absurd statement. Communism mm-hmm. was a member of the American Physical Society, had been president of it, was president of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. So why the attitude? What was going on? Now, with Menzel, I could understand. He was doing highly classified work that nobody knew about. Uh, but Condon, class, who was he working for? We don't really know. Well, we've had you on here for about an hour and a half. I'm going to ask you one more very important question that I've been dying to ask you. I'm going to be having a dinner party here within the next week, and we're going to be having Italian food. I really, would really like to know what brand of or what form of Bon Jovi spaghetti sauce I should use <laughs> for having this dinner what? party. What? That that would people listeners should recognize that. Oh my God! I went to Pittsburgh. And How did somehow you end up doing a commercial for spaghetti sauce? <laughs> yeah, I, and I'm talking to some people, and uh, they wondered if I'd be willing to, uh, and they'd pay me for it to uh, read the commercials. And uh, as a matter of fact, they wound up uh, sending me a case of the sauce, and it was good. <laughs> but they paid me also. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a little weird. Did, what uh, did they film that at? Because you're standing in the, everybody. If nobody knows what I'm talking about, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You did a commercial for Bon, jo- bon Jovi, not Bon Jovi, the rock musician, uh, spaghetti sauce, and you're standing like in front of this corrugated wall, and there's some men in black with earpieces in the background, and and. You, <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> it was a private house in Pittsburgh. Don't, was don't it really? Got from, yes, it was. That's great. It was, it was It was fun. I had to do it because there were other people in Poland, and they flubbed their lines a few times, and, uh, you know, they want these things to come out right. But <laughs> it was it was a, a hoot, is all I can say. It sounds like uh, it. <laughs> You know, what's your favorite type of sauce? And uh, all of them, I think, was my line. All of them. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about that, and I'm like, you know, he did a spaghetti sauce commercial, and everybody's like, no, they didn't. No, he didn't. I'm like, yeah, he did. And I had to send the leak out. I'm like, this is this is not fake. Stanton Freeman actually did a spaghetti sauce commercial. <laughs> it, it was, you know, one of those things you walk into kind of thing, and uh, it was... It was fun. It didn't take that long. I got paid, uh, and I had a lot of nice comments from people. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, you know, the spaghetti sauce man, that's me, and it's good sauce. (laughs) Is it still available? I don't know. I presume so. Uh, they sent me I a need case. To find some. They sent him a check and said, "You're on your way." He said, "All right, goodbye." That's great. I'll have the link up in the show notes for this show on our website when the show goes up. But uh, we yeah, we should give my website too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go right ahead. Yes. Go right ahead. Yeah, this is where the part I was going to say. Go ahead and push anything you want to push. Books, your website, conferences you're doing, okay. everything. Everything. Well, the, the book, the new book, fact. Fiction and Flying Saucers is coming out next week. The big publicity will be next month, but uh, 
I'll be talking about it in Orlando at the MUFON conference, Mutual UFO Network Annual Symposium, next week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, and I'll have copies, would you believe? Uh, but the website is www.stantonfriedman.com. And Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And there are two Nobel Prize winners with that name, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> uh, and uh, it lists uh, six books, I guess, and a number of DVDs and some other things, like I mentioned, Blue Book Special Report 14. You can't get that at uh, Amazon, <laughs> as far as I know, anyway. <laughs> And uh, and some uh, some other stuff that you, people will find interesting. And Kathleen Martin and I did uh, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, and she's Betty's niece, and so she knows more about the case than anybody does. And I got involved in Star Map and all that sort of stuff. But uh, we make a good team, and we did this new book together. Uh, and you know, I'll be doing I'll be at the MUFON conference. And I'll be down in Roswell again. I was there for the festival in early July. And it may surprise people to realize that last year, the International UFO Museum and Research Center in Roswell, which is a town of less than 50,000 people, the, the museum had 184,000 visitors. And Roswell wow. is 200 miles from Albuquerque, 200 miles from uh, Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso. So if you're there, it's because you want to be there. So I'll be there again. Don Schmidt and I, uh, another UFO researcher on Roswell, will be there the 2nd and 3rd of September. And we'll each do lectures and some panels and show some movies and answer questions and all that sort of stuff. Uh you know, Roswell is uh, a, a town smaller than 50,000, hmm. uh, and it's one of the leading tourist attractions in the state. And it does have an, another sense of importance, and that is that the people involved in the Roswell incident, so-called, uh, were the an elite group, the 509th, the only atomic bombing group in the entire world. They dropped the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and two more in Operation Crossroads the following year. So we're not talking about a bunch of dinks sitting around with nothing better to do than to make up crazy stories. And so uh, they love me in Roswell, but I like going there. And it seems appropriate, one of those strange ironies, I guess, that the base was closed because Lyndon Johnson decided that since New Mexico didn't vote for him in the 1964 election, he, he would close the base uh, and move it to, of all places, Texas. So threw a lot of people out of work. They, it, it's a great place. That they have a, an airport, would you believe, a 13,000-foot runway, which is huge. Humongous, yeah, that is a big runway. Oh, crap. Uh, and the German Air Force used to fly there. It's it's a great place to, for flight and doing what they were doing. It was the only base on which there were nuclear weapons at, at the time Roswell happened in 47. So I, I think, isn't it great? They're 
businesses boomed in Roswell because of the museum, because of the government cover-up, if you will, the cosmic Watergate. Yeah. <laughs> well, one I'm, of those. I'm going to a Mothman Festival here next month, and they're all booked up in that area. From what I understand, this is like the 50-year anniversary of it. And they're already saying the town, they're, they're already expected much more capacity than they've ever seen before for, for that event. So, you know, I was, I was like, oh, okay, you know, because I, I made my reservations months ago and somebody was asking me, you know, hey, I'm thinking about going. Can you find out hotel rooms? I'm like, they're booked, man. You're going to have to stay like a couple hours outside of town or something because everything's booked up yeah. there. You know, and people are interested in interesting stuff that you don't hear the straight scoop yeah, on from the, yeah. the media. I wonder if the same kind of thing's going to happen, like up at Shag Harbor or something like that. Like they're going to have. Well, I've been there, Shag Harbor, and we've had good crowds. Uh, believe it or not, and I was in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, which isn't too far from Shag Harbor. We had a good crowd at a conference last year. When I was uh, down at Aurora talking to Jim Mars, I was like, "Are they going to do something like that down here?" Oh, you know, are they going to? Are they going to? Yeah. You know, and he said, "Yeah, they've got a festival going, but it's it's slowly growing. You know, it's starting to get someplace and everything, but." You know, I think well, that uh, there's stuff, you know, people want to go to this kind of stuff, you know. I checked uh, when I was in in uh, Roswell, yeah, all my sections, and I asked how many people uh, are from out of state. Almost all of them. Yeah. People come me. from all over the place, and uh, people say, oh, they have costume contests. Families bring their kids, for God's sake, you got to have something. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh then you and, got the Exeter yeah. event. That's another one that goes on too. Yes. So, yes. you know, if if, yeah. if if it's good for the town and they can make some money off the kind of stuff, you know, sure, yeah, go for it. You know, it's if it, you know, yeah, everybody needs, especially these small towns where these things happen. You know, they need everything they can get. So yeah, and so I'm not ashamed to say that I go to the Roswell Festival and the, the museum. Hey, when you get that many visitors in a small town like that, that tells you something, doesn't yeah. it? Well, you had a heart attack fairly recently within the last few years. Two years ago, two years ago and uh, you're not making was, any effort to stop, man. You're still going. <laughs> well, that's right. I still carry my nitro. I have never used it. <laughs> they put in a couple of stents, and uh, that was my first hospitalization in my life. I was 79 years and 11 months old. Because wow. I've heard rumor of so, you retiring, and you don't sound at all like you're ready to retire. You sound like, you know, you're Well, you're I've be... got bookings coming up. Uh, go to my website. You'll see. And, uh, you know, if nobody wants to hear me, so I won't travel. <laughs> it seems like you happen. still have quite a few people that are yeah. interested in what you have to say, my friend. Yeah. Well, I'm glad about that. And, you know, uh, we're talking about something that is important. That is, what's man's place in the universe? And the, the data I like to throw at people is things like, how do we look to an alien coming here, a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare? That's an indictment of our society, but let's face it, how many thousand kids died yesterday of preventable disease or starvation? Ugh. And we're spending a trillion dollars on things military? Well, but, when you're living you know, way out in the sticks, you know, you, you got to have something to do, I guess. <laughs> cryptic way of putting it. You know, I mean, well, we're, okay, we're kind of yes. like, we're out in the middle of nowhere, galaxy-wise. We're, we're, we're way out. No, you know. no, no, wait a minute. Let, let, let me change that. Uh, the Kepler satellite, which I'm a great admirer of, looks for planets, okay? And it, several years, it catches the, the change in light coming from a star when a planet goes in front of it, which is <clears> darn little 
and so it's a very sensitive device. The latest numbers I've seen indicate that there is, on the average, between 1 and 1.6 planets per star. And you say, so what? Because some have 10 and some have none. Uh, well, what that means is that within 100 light years of here, which is just down the street, local neighborhood. Not for us. There are, <laughs> there are 10,000 stars, and that means about 10,000 planets. And some of them are much closer to other planets than we are. We're out in the boonies, 4.3 light years yeah. to the next star. Zeta-1 and Zeta-2 reticuli are an eighth of a light year apart. That's more than 30 times closer to each other. Yeah. I would expect you'd have earlier interstellar travel when you got a next-door neighbor than when you're out in the boonies. You kind of wonder if we're the cosmic rednecks, you know? <laughs> I don't wonder that at all. It seems apropos. I, I like that line. That's good. Cosmic rednecks. We are the cosmic rednecks, you know? <laughs> well, I talk about the cosmic water gate. Why shouldn't there be cosmic Yeah, rednecks? that would be us. All right, Stan, well, we're going to let you go, but thank you very much for coming on here and talking to us, and thank you for giving us this interview. This is exactly the kind of interview that I wanted to get. This has been a whole lot of fun for us. You know, this yeah, is, it is. I cannot emphasize enough how, how long we've been contemplating calling you and getting you on the show and, and how, <laughs> I mean, we, we literally went on Facebook. We're like, if we ever get Stan Friedman on the show, what kind of show should we do? You know, and then and all the questions <laughs> would fly in and stuff, and I'm like, no, he's already See, given you know that interview. What, though? So. Tim has been telling us now for five years. Yeah, that we could get him on, and I think there was a there was some fear and trepidation involved as well. Yeah, I was a, I was a little nervous. <laughs> well, Tim Tim Benal, it was like, yeah, just go ahead and give him a call, but don't be too starstruck when he answers the phone because he he actually he answers his own phone. He doesn't have an answering yeah. service, or you know, you don't go through a publicist or whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> nobody does that, and especially in this business, you know, because you don't know what quacks are going to call you up and talk to you and everything. I'm like, Stan's not going to answer the phone. I'm like. Tim's just giving me a, a line here to like, this is a joke to him. You know, I'm going to call him up. I'm going to call you up and get some answering service or something. He's like, no, he, Stan will talk to you. You know, I just give him a call and tell him what's up. And, you know, he'll answer the phone and talk to you. But it's been a real pleasure talking to you. You know, My and, pleasure. Uh, we, we will be bugging you again at some point. If you want to bug us when your book comes out, you know, we get a chance to read it and get some questions for you. We'll gladly have you back on if you'd be willing to. Um, sure. So, uh, Again, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and having you here. This is a big milestone for us. This is our 200th episode. That's quite a record, 200 shows. But uh, thank you very much. We very greatly appreciate you being here. Thank you, Stan. Thank you. All right, let's try this again. Let's do. So that was Stan. It was Stan. <laughs> this is again. our second attempt at recording this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I hope everybody that wanted us to get him on here uh, enjoyed that. Uh, I hope that uh, everybody got something new and different out of it than what they've heard before. It, that's what I was, another thing I was going to bring up. There's a lot of people that are just not into UFOs at all that are going to hear this and go, oh, man, I'm not into UFOs. I don't want to do a UFO show. I don't know who Stan Friedman is. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? He didn't really talk a whole lot about UFOs. No, so, he did drop a lot of science stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The guy's a scientist. He's a physicist. Yeah. I mean, like an honest-to-goodness physicist. Yeah, nuclear physicist. And the, the asking him about the jet propulsion, the nuclear propulsion stuff, 
was something that um, me and you have been kicking around for a few years. Oh my God! Yeah, that was always on the on the, on the agenda. That was like from day the one. top question that I wanted to know about. That was always from day one. What are we going to talk to him? Oh, yeah. Well, I want to ask him about this. I want to ask him about that. Uh, you yep. know, so you were you were pretty much ready to go with with asking about that kind of stuff. Yeah, dude, I was like a fucking kid in a candy store. Where I was like more concerned with, okay, you've been doing this for a long time. We know there's a lot of freaks out there. Let's hear about the freaks. You know, let's yeah, hear right. about the weird stuff. <laughs> the Looney Tunes that are stalking you. <laughs> And that that was what I was concerned with because you know when you do these conventions a lot and we know that we know the people that are out there we know the kind of how weird this can get that was what oh, I was yeah. aiming for, and when I told him about that when I called him a few weeks ago and told him about that on the phone he he had a chuckle out of that I'm like this is this is what I want to hear about and he had a strain for me he's like well yeah I think I do got a couple of those stories I think I I do got some stuff that uh that we can toss out there you know <laughs> and I'm like that's what I want to hear, and then he was like send me an email and remind me and he completely forgot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, that was great. Oh, I'm glad you reminded me. Yeah. Oh, I'm supposed to do an interview. Here now. Yeah, well, yeah, you are. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it was great. He was like, I'm, I'm here now, so let's do this. He was like, no hesitation at all. He nope. was ready to jump right into it. Um, and I'm glad we had him for as long as we did too. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Something tells me we probably could have had him for a little bit longer, but I could hear his voice starting to fade on him. I could hear him starting yeah, to fade well, a little bit. So you know, it's after eleven o'clock. You know, oh, it's after midnight there because he's yeah, a, he's an hour true. ahead of us. That's true. So, it is. So, you know, but even still, like to, to get a phone call out of the blue and say, hey, we want to interview you live on the air right now. You know, can you do it? <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> let's roll. <laughs> That's what it was, too. He said, yeah, let's go. I'm here now. Let's do this. And then it, like he had it took him a minute to remember what we talked about. But uh, that was a lot of fun, man. That was really, really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm that so was, glad I was looking forward to that. that we did that. I'm so glad that uh, we can cross that off of the bucket list, which I. I, as as many people know, I have a, a yellow legal pad around here with it's the bucket list with all the names of the people that I've always wanted to get on the show, and at the moment, um, I don't know where the hell I put it. Uh oh. Well, I assure you that when I find the bucket list, I shall cross Stan's name off of it. <laughs> <laughs> so who do we have left now? Right, Redfern. Maybe Paul yeah. Kimball someday. <laughs> I want to get. Uh, I want to get. Uh, I want to get Adam Davies on here. Is that the guy from the four one one? No, that I just listened to another one of his too. I know he was just on another show. He was on. Um, he was on Soraya's show. Uh, Where did the road? That's who it was. Yeah, that's what yeah. he was on. Yeah. No, that's that's not Adam Davies. Is the guy who's uh, in Indonesia right now looking for the Ren Pendek? Really? Yep. You interested in that guy? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, but if we can get him on the show, I will get him <laughs> on for yours. No, I'm going to be completely honest. I'm just not. I'm just not interested that much in the whole. Orang Pandek thing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm completely honest with you. I, f- I find it rather boring because um, it's not, maybe it's just because it's not that mystical of a cryptid, you know? It's, um, but if we yeah, can get the guy on here, I'll, I'll get him on here for you. You know, if we can pull that off, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mean it that way. It's just I've never found the Orang Pandek thing to be that, that interesting because it doesn't strike me as... It doesn't strike me that strange out of the realm of it can't exist. You know, I mean, that's it's not. Why I think it's amazing that it, that out of it, it, the description of it is so close to an orangutan that it's like okay, maybe there's something actually there. 
That fascinates me. See, what it strikes me as is, remember that the Vietnamese deer that they said didn't exist for the longest time, and then they finally yep. found it? The one that has the strange colors and the strange hooves or whatever it has. For no, food. it has gills on the side, on the top, gill flaps on its uh, face. Yeah. It, it, you know, that creature sounds very incredibly cryptid, and it sounds like, it could, and yeah, it exists. Here it is. Now it's in zoos. You know, it's yep. out there. So, you know. So it doesn't, it's just, the orang pandek has never struck me. When I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can I can totally believe that something like this is out there. There's not very many of them, and it's in deep jungle and so forth. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, but that guy does a lot of, he hunts for a lot of different cryptids and things, oh, like yeah. that, doesn't he? I think, like, the orang pandek is only partially what he goes after. He's I'm been out sure. there so many times, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, Stan Friedman. No, that's what more can we say? Yeah, we've we've done it. We've done it, and it's over with. And uh, I'm sure I can get him back on again now that now that it's easy enough to get in touch with the guy. It still blows me away that he just picked up the phone when I called him. Yeah, right. So having said all that, closing of the shows, we got all these voice, we got all these voicemails coming in, and all these people calling. I have a feeling that more are going to call, even though 200's coming past. I I think there's still a few more people out there that are going to call because they've said they're going to. So everybody who's called in, uh, your message is here. Uh, we've got you in here for the most part. So I just put a whole bunch of really cool Pink Floyd songs and outtakes and things like that and tossed it in the background. There were some really heartfelt messages that you guys left that really did that re- that really did pull on the heartstrings. And um, as much as you appreciate you people appreciate us being here, we appreciate you people being out there. And we love hearing from you. I was really blown away by how many messages we got. It was it was so nice to hear from so many of you people that called in. And Amy, you should have held out for more than ten dollars. <laughs> You'll see. Okay. Um, but I think that's it because I'm going to start babbling here. You know, start. Thanks for being here You've for two hundred episodes. Babbling all night, man. Yeah. The well, both of us. I mean, Jesus. We just pulled off one of our biggest interviews we've ever had. So I'm a little, yeah. you know, <laughs> a little wound up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Plus, it's episode 200, so. But uh, that's it, folks. That's uh, all I got to say, and we'll see you guys again real soon. I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to be recording a show next week because there's a bunch of podcasters. The guys from uh, Couch Party are in town, and uh, Jake and Tom take over the world, and we're all supposed to get together for some kind of a fantasy league sports draft, which is Ooh. no consequence to me at all. I'm just going to be there to hang out with everybody from all these people Shut up, coming nerd. to town. Yeah, really. That's what I'm going to feel like. I, I am not a sports guy at all. I watch hockey and basketball, and that's you, about it. You, sports person, put the ball in the thing, and we win. Yay. Yeah, yeah they, they they hit the hockey puck with the basketball down the court. No, I, I, I watch hockey and basketball, and that's really about it. But wow. I'm just going to be at this thing because everybody else is going to be there, and this is the first chance we're all going to have to like meet up. And, and you know me, if somebody's like, hey, I want to meet up with you, and I'm not going to kill you. All right, I'm there. Hey, I oh, want to meet up with you when I'm not going that's to kill it. you. One more very important thing. Uh-oh. And we can't forget about this because this is huge. Uh, congratulations, Logan. Congratulations. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. And you're and your new little man. Welcome to the world. You know, uh, wishing the best name. for you guys. Yeah, love the name. <laughs> love the name. All four of them. Be all right. <laughs> Everything's going to be all right. Congratulations, Logan. I hope you and the missus are doing well. And uh, that was the big thing that I wanted to make sure that I did not forget. Yeah, but right. um, anyways, that's about, it. We're not going to talk about the steering wheel or lotion or no, no, okay. no. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I really don't. No, of course you don't. You fruit loop. <laughs> All right. This is really anyway. Good. Peace out from the D folks. Thank you for being here for 200 episodes. This is Lobo from Connecticut. Woo! Rosian and Lobo. 
It's after two in the morning. I'll have you know. Jeff Ritzman here, Paratopia. Oculus these days. I heard you uh, got a 200th episode coming up, or it is now. So happy 200th, guys. It's, uh, that's, a, that's a big one, right? That's a big one. And uh, Christ knows, I know, how tiresome it can become <laughs> doing a podcast. And it can indeed. So I hope you enjoy it while it lasts. And, uh, yeah, and, uh, and good luck with uh, the next 200 here. Keep going. Keep rolling. Keep doing what you do. Love you guys. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Mama Duff. Marty told me to call, so I called. Is everybody happy now? Hi, boys. Love you. Bye. Hello, Project Archivist. This is Alex from the Alex Cast. I am wishing you, I don't know, happy 200th? What do you say? Good job, guys. Double thumbs up. Whatever whatever the appropriate 200th episode anniversary message is, consider that appropriate message given. So keep it up. Looking forward to episode 300 and 400 and etc. which I'm sure Rogan just shivered thinking about all that editing. Yes, have fun. Bye. Hey, family. Dusty here. I had to leave my name. That's weird. I'm not calling collect. Anyways, congrats on your 200th episode. I love you guys. And yes, you are my family. Um, yeah, I've, just, I've gained so many sisters from other misters and brothers from other mothers. Um, and you're not just another podcast. You've seen me through some shite and through the good times. Ro, your Mickey Mouse ears will always bring a smile to my face. That was fucking brilliant. And Lobo, you're the brother I never had, and thanks for the support and having my back. Um, your family are beautiful. Uh, I was going to read Harry Potter with theatrics and expressive actions, but Marty said no, you bastard. I love you, really. Anyway, sending much love from the Canuck in England, where our politics are just as fucked up as yours, but with posh accents. What can I say? Anyways, love you guys. Have fun, take care, mwah, 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 Oh, this is Project Archivist. It's Marty from Scotland, trying to kick off the ball rolling with us. Uh, we call in for the show. Good luck, guys. Well done for the last 200. Hope you'll get many more to come. Another girls, four down. Bye. Hey, boys, it's Ben from Minnesota wishing you a happy 200. Yeah, have a good show. Love you. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Allison of Rudolph the Second. Another weird history. Just wanted to give you guys uh, congratulations on your 200th episode. 200 episodes over five years. That is no small thing. Go, y'all. Looking forward to the next one. Bye. Hey, Rojan. This is Dell. Wishing you a happy 200th show and more to come, I hope. And uh, congratulations. And um, just want to say, you're awesome. Hi from Cisco, too. Later. Hey, guys, it's Chuck. Congratulations on having enough useless crap to talk about for 200 shows. Looking forward to a bunch more. Jerks. Hi, this is Roy Wilson calling from Rhine, Virginia. On Marty's uh, example... Just let you guys, you guys are one of the greatest shows out there. So, 
It's a really good show, guys. Thanks. Rogan Lobo, this is Danny Reese, a longtime listener, uh, sometime contributor to the Facebook page. Just want to say congratulations on 200 episodes, and I hope you bring us many, many more. Thanks, guys. Hi, guys. It's Ginormous Smoothies. I just want to let you know that I'm so happy you've reached your 200th episode of weirdness and fun. I'll talk to you later. Bye now. Hey, Ro, it's Faye calling. Just wanted to let you know that I support you in your lifestyle choices, even though I may not necessarily agree with them. And I'm not really sure what I'm calling in for, but uh, anyway, in all seriousness this time, I just wanted to call and say congratulations on 200 episodes. You guys really ought to be damn proud of what you've made. You've, you know, not only made a podcast, but you've made a community. And I just wanted to let you know that you guys have gotten me through a couple of rough nights on the road and some really wicked snowstorms and some loneliness and some dark. So thank you very much for that, Lobo and Rojan. And I really appreciate what you do. Happy 200. Bye. Hi, this is Amy Pauling. I wanted to say congratulations on your 200th show and also some guy paid me $10. Nobody really paid me $10 to say that, just so you know. And I hope I also have the right show because there was nothing on here to say who I was actually calling except for a lady from Google, so I don't know who I'm talking to, but even if I'm not, I hope you have a good 200th show. So, bye. Hello, this is Arnie calling. Wishing you guys a happy 200th episode. Been a long-time listener and follower. Love the group. Love you guys. And uh, I always forget what I want to say when I get online and well, on the phone. But now that I've written it down, I'm going to read it to you. What happens when a bunch of somewhat eccentric people get together? Project Archivist does. And when those eccentrics come out of their shells, epicness, pure epicness, just like your podcast, your podcast. Happy 200th episode. And now that I have stumbled through that, congratulations. Bye. Hey guys, it's Jim, or AKA the second most interesting man in the world, apparently. Uh, just kind of wish you guys a happy 200th, and may you always have one more guest than you are ready to do shows. Later, guys. Hey, Rodrin, Lobo, this is David G., Dave Krasinski from Brooklyn, New York. Congratulations on your shows. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at things, you're one of the up-and-coming podcasts. Perhaps not quite as high as some, but anyway, you seem to be doing very well. I, I always listen to everything as soon as it comes out. And I have, well, maybe a little disappointed once or twice, but not much. Keep up the good work. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye. Hey guys, it's Kevin from Facebook, the smartass that never posts anything, but is always quick for a sarcastic comment or, uh, you know, smartass comment. Anyways, just want to congratulate you guys on 200 shows. Uh, thank you so much for a great show, great interviews, just doing a fantastic job. You guys can be silly and stupid and but really informative and do your research and have great interviews too so thanks for everything love you guys and uh bro i will actually see you at mothman i'm not one of those that says they're gonna go and doesn't end up going you know life and kids and all that be damned we're coming down to 
Mothman Festival. So again, congratulations, guys, on 200 episodes. Thank you so much, and here's 200 more. See ya. Hey, this is Joe from the Random Asshole Podcast. I don't remember what it's actually called. I was just calling to say, happy 200th episode. I hope you guys have strippers and Bigfoot costumes and Kenny Trail cake. Happy 200, guys. Later. While I'm not technically the head of the Illuminati, or honestly even involved with the organization, I think I can speak on their behalf because I channel Nick Cage every night around about 3 a.m. when I'm masturbating to a picture of a pyramid. You guys need to stop trying to get into the Illuminati because they're just on another level than you guys can ever imagine or obtain. They are like Snooky compared to the average high school girl. You guys just aren't even in their league. If you guys do not try to stay away, I will be forced to alert the Illuminati authorities, which will come scoop out your brain with straws and spoons made from your mother's bones. Bye-bye. Hey, Roro and Lobolicious. This is Robbie P.I. from Duluth, Minnesota. Happy 200. And this is me, Jaden. Allison from Duluth, Minnesota. Um, hi. <laughs> she doesn't listen to the show, but she wanted to say congratulations. I'm better anyway. than him. She thinks she's better than me. Bye bye, as Lobo would say. So apparently, I got too involved in threatening you with those straws from your mother's bones to say happy 200th episode. It's really great that you guys have got this far. I'm really proud of you. And you guys just need to just, just do your own thing. No more Illuminati bullshit. And just, and just do your own thing. I really like the show. And 200 episodes is a lot. That's like 200 single dollar bills lined up together. Well, honestly, that probably takes more effort than doing your show. But, but anyway, congratulations. And, well, if you guys don't, don't keep going on and getting on, I guess I'm going to have to just freak the fuck out. Have a good day. Hey guys, this is Danny Pish. Um, I'm calling late apparently, because the show has already been recorded, so uh, I just want to say happy 200th episode, and uh, I guess it's pretty fitting that you guys did it on uh, HP Lovecraft's 127th birthday, so uh, have a good one guys, thanks for putting it out, you know, um, I'll talk to you later, bye. Hey guys, this is HAB uh, from Couch Party. Just wanted to call and congratulate Rogan and Lobo on their 200th episode. You guys are amazing. I know for us at Couch Party, the content and production value you guys put into your show is something we will always try to emulate and I don't think we'll ever be able to achieve. Uh, I really can't thank you guys enough for how awesome you've been to us and I really, really look forward to hearing 200 more. Good job, guys. this program to bring you an important study from an undisclosed classified underground facility. We're with best-selling author, paranormal researcher, and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman to ask which is his favorite flavor of Bon Jovi brand pasta sauce. The marinara, the garden style, or the arrabbiata? 
All of them. There you have it. Bon Jovi brand pasta sauces. The preferred pasta sauce of paranormal researchers and nuclear physicists everywhere. Taste the tradition.